0: Theyeshiva.net.
1: All right. Welcome everyone to Tackling Taboos Number Two. In number one, um, a few taboos tackled us. We tackled a few of the other ones. What we've decided in this one, um, which is the second of a three-part series, the third one will be March 16th, Thursday, two weeks and one day from today, March 16th. At 8 p.m. So again, if you're watching this live, then follow Rabbi YY or myself, wherever we are, and you'll see a link to sign up for the third one. If you've signed up to this, you'll automatically be signed up to the next one. If you're watching this on YouTube sometime between March 1st, when we're recording this on March 16th, then somewhere in the uh, comment section should be a, a link to sign up to the, uh, the third one. Uh, the format for tonight, we'll be discussing... Uh, solutions for addiction as much as we could in a 20 or 30 minute discussion. Then we'll give a more comprehensive um, uh, our words will we'll cover more on the subject of homosexuality. We'll do our best again in a limited time. And then we'll go to question and answers. And we'll start with the question and answers from last time that we didn't answer. So even if the people aren't here if their question was there and we've Reviewed them, and they're relevant, some we combine together. then we will um, go to, through those first also in this um, zoom, you'll see two formats. if you're on YouTube, don't put, we won't see it. so if someone's watching this live on YouTube, any questions there or comments we won't see um, here, so be on the zoom itself and don't use the chat function. use the question and answer and those who are watching this participating, if you upvote a question. And it's towards the top. It's more likely to get answered, but we'll get to as many as, uh, as possible. Rabbi Waiwai, welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you for... Uh,
2: yes. Welcome, Ali. And thank you for the opportunity and the privilege <laughs> for putting it together. And thank you for everybody, thousands who joined us last time and are joining us this time. It's really, it's very meaningful it really to is be incredible. able to have all of you here. Um, one of the things that happened... And the feedback, I have to say, the feedback that uh, Ellie and I received over the last two weeks was really astounding. And I also want to thank all the critique, some therapists, some colleagues, some educators, some lay men and women from all stripes and walks of life have emailed either me or Ellie, you know, various points of, of critique and subtleties and enhancements and important Important ideas and observations. So it's really very meaningful because this is really an ongoing conversation it, about life, and you know yeah. we're sharing, but we all need to grow, and we all need to learn more, and we all need to be able to be open to every type of and, truth that is out there and in here. So thank you, everybody, for all your feedback, including. And it's one of the reasons we're doing it live, right? Is
1: to uh, for it to be an interaction. What I I didn't make a commitment, and I don't think you do either. I don't want to put words in your mouth to getting everything right, but to be open minded to everything we hear. So I did receive certain critique, especially um in the sense that we covered homosexuality so briefly. So some picked apart words and some picked apart the fact that we covered it so briefly and said, Hey, like this topic needs to be discussed. And uh said, so, Okay, put your comment in the form of a question and uh we hope to uh we hope to be able to address it. That is the intention. Okay. So in term, oh, there was one thing that happened actually between last one and this one, which I shared with you, Rabbi YY. Someone reached out to me and, um, they said they were on the webinar and a couple of days later, uh, their wife found them with a, um, their backpack with uh, some alcohol. There's nothing necessarily wrong with, um, alcohol, but it's a problem of riding alcohol. And, uh, he said based on the webinar, he didn't know who to reach out to. And he reached out to me and I recommended, um, after speaking to him, some twelve-step uh, groups, and he went to his first meeting. But what actually surprised me from it—the reason I wanted to bring it up—is because here was someone who was dealing with something that I don't think is so taboo, an alcohol addiction. And he said that he didn't have who to reach out to. I don't know why. Like, it's not even the topic that I uh, I, I typically um, address. So whatever that meant—that he didn't feel that he had anyone to reach out to—and he was grateful that he had heard the webinar just before. I think that whatever is being done, we have to add um, a lot more uh, to it. Yeah.
2: And it it just underscores the truth. There is so much shame inside of so many of us. And for good reason. There's a good reason why there's shame. There's so much stigma. There's a lack of empathy and compassion and understanding. And people feel, you know, I need to get my children into the right schools. I need to marry them off. I'm an upstanding member in the community. I'm going to go to a group. Who's going to be there? And suddenly this guy, he may be teaching Gemara at 5 o'clock in the morning. I don't know. You know, he may be, you know, <laughs> he may be a, one of the most fabulous teachers in, in, in a great institution. Yeah, who in knows? Lakewood or Muncie or Borough Park. Yeah, or who Brown knows where, or, what,
1: he, what he's doing the, huh? the day. I didn't ask him, but he actually did mention that at the end of the meeting, so this particular meeting, that he went to, everyone puts their arm on their shoulders and they say something in unison. And from... What I imagine they say is the surrender, the serenity prayer. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. And he's like, what's that mantra they do at the end? I was a little bit, uh, uncomfortable. I said, don't worry. It's been cleared by, uh, by rabbis. You're allowed to get healing. Don't worry. (laughs) It's safe. It's safe. (laughs) You didn't, uh, you didn't violate anything by talking about, uh, by asking God to grant
2: anything and saying God in the English and not in the Hebrew. It's okay.
1: (laughs) You're fine. You're fine. It's been cleared.
2: It's it's just so important. It's so important to be able to open up conversations for people to feel that there is a lot of support out there. There is a lot of support today. You can't trust everybody. That's true, and you may have confirmed in your life that you can't trust people, but there are there, there are, are people really. you could trust, and there are a lot of healing methods and models today. So we all need to be ambassadors of healing. There's, I think each and every one of us has. Such a sacred duty for our family, for, for, for friends, for colleagues, for strangers. There's so much opportunity there. There's a special, it's a yeah, special take, time of healing now. I take a issue a lot of, of respect healing.
1: to therapists and those in the healing community and those with licenses and who've studied different things. But a, a couple of years ago when um, there was some controversy around the Mic Drop uh, talks, which I was involved in, so one of the criticisms are who are we to help people share their story? We're not therapists. And to my mind, everyone's a healer. Everyone, every person has the capacity to to heal. The only prerequisite is that we first heal ourselves before we heal others, but we all have the capacity to uh, to heal. So should we jump in? Okay, so Let's we'll jump, jump right into, into, into solutions.
2: Yeah. You know, and I think, I I just want to say this, because it's it's beautiful what you just said, we're all healers, and I think one of the deepest ways we become healers is through cultivating real humility, and a lack of judgmentalism, and a lack of arrogance, you know, that I know everything. Like, as a rabbi, as a teacher, people ask me a lot of types of questions. And I once asked a, a mentor of mine, a good friend, who's also a very experienced therapist, and I said to him, you know, I feel very often that I don't know the answer. <laughs> and he said, that's perfectly fine. You don't know the answer. You don't know who to reach out to to be able to get perspective. The problem is when people become arrogant and they decide that they know the answer, when they don't, they don't even have the humility to say, you know, maybe this is something I don't have experience with, but they'll give advice. That's That's unfair. We all need to be very, very humble, you know. The worst therapist or doctor you want to go to is the one who says, Everything there is to know about the brain and the body, I know. <laughs> a rabbi who tells you, Everything there is to know about truth and God, I know. Right. Who is it away. who said, The only thing I know is that I don't know? Right. Yeah. Talmud Chachim. The, the, the expression for a real Titus scholar is, He's a student of wisdom. He may be ninety-five years old, Beautiful. studying his whole life. He's a student of wisdom, Beautiful. Talmud, always a student. The moment I'm not a student anymore, I'm not allowed to teach. I'm not allowed to share. It could be dangerous. My 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 status, my need to get validation, my need to control, can take over and manipulate and exploit very vulnerable people, and that's very very dangerous. People have to be very careful. I know it's not our topic, but I do have to say this because I get emails constantly. You know, there are some rabbis who are amazing people. (laughs) There are therapists, doctors, ordinary people who are amazing, who are are full of kindness and empathy and truth, but some who who are so broken and they break others. They break others, consciously or unconsciously, and you need to be very, very careful. Even when you're vulnerable, don't allow somebody to take advantage of you. Don't allow a therapist, don't allow a rabbi, don't allow a Rebbitzin. don't allow, you know, a mentor, don't allow the to If something is not feeling right, if somebody is not bringing you to a place of, of more connection, of more confidence, of, of more love, of more serenity, you know, ask tough questions. I just think it's so important for people who are vulnerable and they, they give their life to somebody and just be, be you know, respect yourself. It's a tough respect thing because we have to open ourselves to heal. And the opening process. No, we have to open ourselves. I'm just closing the door because of a commotion. We have to open ourselves up to heal. And when you find a person you trust, Mm -hmm. be humble, be vulnerable, let go. Because if not, I won't heal. But always, always ask yourself, you know, was there, were there boundaries crossed? You know, was I taken advantage of? Did somebody exploit me? Maybe physically, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. You know, there's a situation now of women who are going to see a particular spiritual master. And the way he took advantage of these women, sexually and emotionally, this is, is horrific. <laughs> the women were so vulnerable. They were so vulnerable and he groomed them correctly. And this is, you know, on this is something that we cannot tolerate. And we have to all be... Cautious and aware and be there for people.
1: No, I understand. In this way. I'm just mentioning. I have a this, friend, throw it out. Have let's a friend get into who was sexually it. abused about... by a therapist he went to to deal with the fact yeah. that he was sexually abused. So, as a, as a child, his parents found out, went to a therapist, and was sexually abused by the uh, by the therapist. So you imagine, like, how does that person open themselves up again uh, for healing? Where do they find the uh, the trust again?
2: <laughs> take, take take what happened, take the story in Israel with Chaim Valder Chaim Valder was considered one of the top, top therapists and experts on education for all of Israel in the religious community. He wrote one of the most prominent essays every week on pedagogy, on education. Mm -hmm. His books, we all had. We all had his books and our kids loved his books. He was a brilliant man in many ways and had a lot of, he he understood empathy. And for 25 years, the most complicated sexual abuse situations and challenges in B'nai B'rach and other places were sent to him. He was the man. And we don't even know how many people he molested. Whether it's do- we know dozens, but we don't know if it's hundreds or more until he committed suicide. So, and, and and the story was out there, but nobody believed it. Nobody believed it. It can't be not him, not him. You're going to believe a woman, a woman instead of him. And then Rav the chief rabbi of tzvas you know, he told me, I had a conversation with him personally, and he said, 24 women, 24 women with children, married, some what? of them grandmothers, came to testify, 24 normal women don't destroy their lives just because <laughs> they have something against Chaim Fowl. The God. fact it's that we even step. needed 24. And then people sided with him. <laughs> right. And right. then people sided with him. So the reason I'm pointing this out is just all of us have a responsibility to be able to encourage people, to, to challenge the silence, because that's where evil lives in silence, and evil lives in stigma. We all need to be, have mouth and ears, not to stand by idly as the blood of our children spill in the presence of predators of all types and forms. Silence does not help Anybody besides, besides the perpetrators and the murderers, they love silence. They love (laughs) two words, Lashon (laughs) Hara, Lashon Hara, Lashon Hara, somebody that's walking around with a gun, murdering children. That's not Lashon Hara, I'm sorry.
1: 100%. I'll tell you a story from last year. Anyway. No, it's good. It's, <laughs> you already got my blood boiling. No, it's good. You already got the, my blood boiling. Not the fashion.
2: <laughs> it's too early, too early. Last year, in the I want to show. tell you a
1: story. So last year when we did the conversation and we're going straight into the healing of the, uh, the addiction. So there was a, a young boy who reached out. He was between 18 and 20. I don't remember. But he was young and, uh, he had become a Balt five or so years before. And one of the first things he saw. So he reached out to me because he saw our talk on the shame of, uh, addiction where we focused on porn addiction And He said that he's been struggling With porn Pretty much You know Since his, uh, Since puberty I don't know 13 years old 14 years old And One of the first things he saw When he came from Was a video on YouTube Of He just told me A Sephardic rabbi Who was railing against um uh, Like Shikva Spilling seed And uh, all, all these things And he said it stuck with him It like Completely stuck with him So and every, I tried to talk to him and say, listen, you're you're doing amazing. You're 18, 19, after all he was, and you care about this thing, and you're working on it. You've A few days, you get clean. Congratulate yourself. Why are you beating yourself up? And he couldn't hear my words. He kept going back. No, how can you say it? How can you be understanding? How can, I said, you heard Rabbi Yoyi talk. You, it's not only me that's saying it. Like, you heard a rabbi there and say and show compassion and empathy for someone who was um, – uh, for for someone who's who's gone and you know fallen in those behaviors it's not so simple we don't just uh, we don't just bash some, someone a couple of times he heard me and then he would fall back you know a week or two later but one of the things um, that i said to him which i want to share here as i said how old was this gentleman this rabbi i don't even know who he is how old how old was he he said i don't know 50 60s i said okay no one who's 50 or 60 no one who's that age can speak to a teenager about the problem with porn because today I'm 37 years old and what I grew up with and what I got sucked into is nothing compared to the challenge that children that kids have today. I was 22 years old when the iPhone came out. I got hooked on porn from magazines and from dial-up desktop computers in my house. Imagine what my life would have been like had I had a supercomputer or whatever you you know these things that can access the internet when I was 12, 13, 14 years old. Never mind all the algorithms and what they're feeding us and everything else. So for anyone to sit there at 50, 60 years old and judge a kid who's 18 years old today about his problem with pornography has no right. He's not, he hasn't, hasn't even been close to his situation. You're telling a starving person about not eating, not eating non-kosher food. This, this kid is up against the biggest machines and he's fighting back. He deserves to be championed. And not put down at all, especially by someone who has no way of understanding him. So now I got fired up also. Okay, to the solution. So first of all, I want to say that from my standpoint, I'd love to hear your thoughts. So I'll speak in the, in the context of porn addiction because that's my story. But I think healing applies to everything. Is, number one, no one's going to hear anything tonight that's going to be the magic bullet. I'm still working on, on, on my healing. All I'll, I'll say is this, is that we're trying to rebuild a person which is probably more complex than building a house. And there isn't one person you can go to. You can't call a general contractor even and say, get me everything for my house because he's going to need to know what did the architect say? What did the designer say? And you're running around to stores, picking up sofas and furniture and all the limitations that each one of these people have. The same is true. We're rebuilding a human being. This is not just how do I get rid of porn? Porn is built on belief systems and any negative behaviors is built on belief systems. It's built on our identity, our personalities, our traumas, all of these. It's this whole foundation. And on top of it, the tip of the iceberg is this behavior that's getting our attention, pornography. So when we want to heal it, we got to go to the bottom of the iceberg and start chipping away at those things and understanding it. So there isn't one person you're going to call and say, okay, call them and everything is going to be fixed. It's not like this. We need a team. We need a team. We need a village in order to heal. So. That's kind of the first thing uh I, I want to share on that topic is that this is not a simple thing. People go to rehab four, five, six times, make certain progress and still relapse and still go back. And this is true with uh, any of these things. We're rebuilding a person. It's a difficult thing to do. It's a challenging thing to do. And the person who's most responsible for it is the person themselves. So first thoughts on that. Anything you want
2: to add or should I keep going?
1: Anything you want to add,
2: you keep going. And also share with us if you can, you know, you, you have so much experience with your own life besides the advice you've given, like what were like what were the, the key like if I were to ask you, Ellie, you know, what were maybe four or five moments or or moments of awareness and experience that really changed you and, 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 and got you into a life of awareness, of recovery, of of transformation, okay, so of if, healing.
1: If, yes. The person yeah, let me who give may be listening experience. to us, right? Yeah, he may be addicted experience. to alcohol. So let's just say there's addiction and there's addiction, right? Someone who's watching porn once in a while or using alcohol once in a while, not necessarily the category of addiction. How do we know something is addiction? Is the progressive nature of it. It somehow keeps amping up. So in my case, um, I found that I was going to more and more and more dangerous behaviors, more reckless, more. I was pushing the envelope constantly. And one of the experiences I had was A, I got into a relationship, and for the first time, I was forced to lie in a way that I never had to previously. I was able to, till then, I was able to, you know, have my addiction in secrecy and silence, like you say, I suddenly had to lie to another human being, the woman I was dating, who eventually became my wife, and that made it much more difficult. So the shame magnified, but what was interesting is the addiction progressed even worse then. It didn't get better because of that, it got worse, much worse. Fortunately, I was already working on some things and this is what I had and hopefully some of what we can offer tonight. I had an address to go to because prior to my dealing with addiction, I was already dealing with the fact that I was sexually abused as a child. So I had the address of a therapist. I had a number. I had some language around it. I had, I had who to call. So while I was struggling this in one moment, right, you have to catch that person in the, in the moment sometimes. So in that space of feeling total demoralization, I reached out to a therapist and he put me in touch. He said, Ali, we've dealt with a lot of things. This I can't help you with alone. This you're going to need meetings. You're going to need a support group. You're going to need a system. Not meeting me one or two hours a week. That's not going to be enough for this. So he gave me the number of an individual. So I had this guy who was a person in 12 steps. He was recovering from his own addiction. He was 20 or 30 years older than I was at the time. So in his case, when his addiction came to light, he had cheated on his wife and his uh, his um, children were teenagers, so they knew about it. And it was a massive source of shame. It was much more than what I was dealing with then, which was just hiding something from someone I was dating, just. In any event, in this context, I found that one of these behaviors, and I, I don't want to get too graphic in these conversations because we're talking about sexual addiction, but my addiction progressed beyond pornography. So often that I said the progressive nature, addiction. And there was a certain experience that I had that I said, okay, like when I'm exceptionally stressed, I'll go to this experience. This experience will soothe my soul in some way. And I went there and it didn't do anything. And the fear I felt walking out of there saying, what's next? I knew there's a next because I, you know, it's like I, if, if we had to measure an alcohol, it's like, okay, I I drank a bottle and it got me to a certain place. Maybe this time if we take a bottle and we take, you know, a, a fistful of weed gummies, this is maybe going to take me to this uh, state that's going to feed me. In sex addiction, it's the same thing. And suddenly I was saying, okay, if this didn't work and this was kind of the the place that I said I call it a top shelf experience, this was the experience that I held near and dear to me and say I'm never going to go there um, unless I absolutely need to. And I went there and I felt nothing and I felt total fear. And fortunately in that moment of feeling total fear, remember walking out of the place now, I called this guy. Who was in twelve steps? And I said, "Just help me. Tell me what I need to do." And he directed me to twelve step meetings. I continued with my therapist, and you know, a whole uh, evolution unfolded. But that was one of the key moments for me—the the sweet willingness of a desperate man calling someone and just utter humility. Tell me what I need to do. I'm willing to do anything. I don't want this life anymore. Wow. Twenty seven
2: or twenty eight. And the addiction began at what age? So it
1: started the, the first time I remember, um, like the obsession with, uh, the female body, so to speak, was probably about 12 or 13 years old, uh, when catalogs would show up through my, um, house. And whatever it was, it could be something innocuous, like a, a, a Land's End magazine or something like, like that. And in the back was a lingerie section and it started there and then it progressed. Eventually we had got a computer in the house and, then it turned to pornography and then friends in school, you know, a magazine here, a magazine there. And, you know, it, it kept progressing, but it started 12 or 13. By the time I was definitely by the time I was 14, it was a full on obsession, a full on obsession.
2: So you're talking about 13 or 14 years of a full on obsession until you really reached for help.
1: Yeah. And, um, that was, my first meeting was Pesach in 2013. That was my very first meeting I went to. And I'd seen a therapist for years before. It was Pesach of 2013. But when I f- got sober, like they call the sobriety date, I, I mentioned in our last conversation that that sobriety date doesn't exist anymore because I, I slipped once. But that started around New Year's of 2017, roughly, beginning of 2017. So from 2013 till 2017... I was walking on quicksand, even though I was desperate. I was looking for help. I was sweetly willing. I was tell me what to do and I was following direction, but I still kept slipping. It takes time. This is not something that's, that's overnight. And I think the same is true whether addiction is what we're discussing, but it doesn't matter what we're, what we're talking about. I think it takes several years, three to five years for someone who earnestly starts the process. If they're dealing with something, we're talking about someone who's dealing with something three to five years, to feel like they're on solid ground.
2: Why? Why does it take so long, you think? My, from, my expe- from your experience, why because would you walk on Quicksand? Th- the, the hardest
1: Quicksand. thing to get to are the beliefs. Because we have beliefs that we think are facts. And we, it's so hard to know that these are not, like you start talking to someone, and you say, what, everyone doesn't feel this way? Like this is not, this is, this is not the way it is. I had so many beliefs and so many thoughts. I mean, they were just an unwinding it we spoke about one last time, right? Which is, I cannot depend on people to have my needs met. I mean, we can walk through life with this thing that independence is this virtue and it helped me in so many areas, right? I started a business at 19, 20 years old. I was a, I, I achieved some financial success. I'm sure a lot of that was the independent streak. I wanted to be independent. I can't rely on anyone, so I'm going to do it myself. I don't want to call someone for a dollar. I don't want to call someone for a hug. You know, like, I don't want anything from anybody. So I'm done with them. You're done with humanity. And that belief, to realize that that's a belief, not a fact. (laughs) It's a belief that I chose to believe, chose. I needed to, but whatever it is, it's a belief. So I think that's kind of like the deepest part of it. And then there's trauma. Trauma sits inside of us. Um, I, I know we're going to talk about um, uh, plant medicines on a future experience, but um, there, w- there was an experience I had under plant medicines, which was as I, I did everything for my anxiety. If I tell you everything, I had anxiety from the youngest age, much before my addiction, before the abuse, as, as far back as I can remember, I had anxiety. And so much so that if you asked
2: me. You have anxiety from what age? What age? Probably from like
1: two, three years old. I think there always was anxiety. But definitely my child, there was always a lot of anxiety. A lot, a lot, a lot of anxiety. But I didn't know it was anxiety. I didn't know it as anxiety. If you would have asked me 15 years ago, Ellie, are you anxious? I wouldn't have used those words because it was, was the natural state. You know, give someone a backpack to carry their whole life. You know, what's with the load you're carrying? Well, I'm not carrying anything. What are you talking about? It just feels like part of nature. And I did a lot of things, tons of breath work and tons of other modalities to heal, but there was still this anxiety that sat with me. And um, I had an experience under plant medicines where, Rabbi Jackson, I'd love to, you've helped me process some of my other experience in words. It felt, not if, the experience was as if there was a a, um, a spirit Living in my lower abdomen, which I always kind of felt something there, living in my lower abdomen that left me in that experience. It flew out of me. I don't have any ways to say it. Is there some, is there some Jewish basis for this? And one second, it wasn't just a spirit that flew out of me and that was that. Since that date, two or so years ago, I have never felt anxiety like that since. And during it, before it before it left me, I felt the most intense panic attack of my life under it, which was a very scary thing, right? And we'll talk more plant medicines in the future ones. But there was an entity that was inside me that flew out. That's what it felt like under the experience. And then when it left, I never felt that anxiety again afterwards. And just before, I felt the anxiety in the most intense way I ever felt in my life. So the,
2: the, the way out of the, the way anxiety through. was through the all anxiety. The
1: You You know what the facilitator asked me a little bit before, which was so fascinating. He said, Ellie, are you ready to let go of things? I said, why? Why am I so scared? Why am I so scared? My grown man, why am I so scared? So he says, don't ask why. We don't ask why. Just ask. Just ask, how do you get rid of it? So I guess he saw an expression on my face, and he said, Ellie, are you ready to get rid of it? He said, am I ready to get rid of it? So he said, don't ask me. Ask yourself. And in this state, you can ask yourself. He said, am I ready to get rid of it? And I checked with myself. Ellie, are you ready? The answer was no. And I held on to it for the 10 or 15 minutes, and then I said, now I'm ready. So he said, ask how to let it go. And as I started letting it go, whatever that process was, that's what it felt like. Is there any basis for a traumatic experience to live inside us almost as a spiritual, as a, as a, as
2: an entity, as a, as a form, as within Judaism?
1: Oh. Mm.
2: There's not just a basis for it. I don't exaggerate when I tell you that Kabbalistic and Hasidic literature is saturated with the notion that there are klipoists, which we use as a mystical term, but it's really a very, very relevant term. It means literally entities that are defined as darkness, as blockages, as traumas, as things that quarantine and exile our soul and distort ourselves to ourselves. And they really can saturate us. And by the way, I should say, you know everybody grows up with this idea of Ganadin and gehenna you know you're going to paradise or purgatory what is really gehenna gehenna really means cleansing ourselves purging ourselves from these types of of entities that literally block our light our our love our infinity our, our oneness with with our creator and therefore with with the world and with humanity and 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 you know, I know many of us know that purging <laughs> right? it <Yeah>. is Gehenna, <laughs> because the way at, it's Gehenna. This experience it's which right?
1: It didn't come out through vomit, but it came out right. It was more of, but it was a purging. It was a shaking, a violent shaking. Um, it it was the scare, the most scared I ever felt in my life. Was the scare, the most scared I ever felt in my
2: life? Yeah, yeah. So th- this is really the pur- word purgatory. Gehenna means purging, it's to scary. cleanse. You know, people think it's like this vengeance of God who's going to punish you or destroy you. It's really the exact opposite. It's really the blessed opportunity to be able to embrace the me pre-trauma, the me pre-abuse, the wow. me pre-anxiety. <laughs> what a gift. What a gift. Because my, 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 my infinity may be in exile. And this is a concept that saturates Jewish spiritual literature saturates again the <laughs> right. words the words are ancient words but but the con- and, and and I have to say that today with all of the models of healing we 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 could understand these sources so much so much better when I learned tanya today I've taught tanya for many many years but I have to say the way I learned it today is with so much more nuance and subtlety and and sensitivity and I'm like wow how did he know all of this But uh, but yeah, so it's it's really an incredible concept. I want to ask you this anxiety that you describe. It was not only in social settings. It wasn't like a social social
1: anxiety. That was something else that I dealt with. But at this point, it was already resolved. Was uh, more of a social anxiety. Is that social anxiety? This was a um, the the words I gave it. So first of all, the way it felt was a thought would enter my head, and I would go into doomsday scenarios. Or sometimes it was something on the outside that I would see and doomsday scenarios would enter and I'd be captured by it, completely captured. And that's the way it felt in this moment. In the moment during it, it felt like first it started off a very pleasant experience. I was enjoying it. It was good. I was having different insights and information. And suddenly a thought came in my head that what I'm doing is dangerous. It's terrible. I'm I'm never going to get out of it. Whatever. Some thought, right? The doomsday scenario, this is over. I took a, a discomfort and turned it into... A catastrophic thinking, if you've heard the term, and it would take over, I would feel it in all of me, my arms would get um, like tingly. I, so in that case, it became very extreme, I, my breath got very short, I said, I'm leaving, I'm leaving, I'm walking out. The more I walked, and the more I tried to distract, the worse it got. So finally, I lied on the floor in a fetal position. And I said, what is this? What is this? What is this? What is this? Uh, one of the things that I felt in that moment, which um, I don't know that I fully understood yet was that the fear, the underlying fear beneath everything, was a fear of feeling joy. So what did I connect it to? It was like, as things were getting better, like when things were good, as things were getting better, this voice would come in and say, oh, you're going to feel like, you're going to feel good right now, but what if? And then these scenarios would take over and it was a real, I mean, I've had m- many panic attacks over this. Like it can, it was spiraled way beyond just a, a uncomfortable thought.
2: So the point you're making here is just to... to- to sum up, the point is that the hardest part of dealing with addictions is the underlying belief system or beliefs that sit in our bellies, yeah, maybe unconsciously, that, that, and dictate our behavior on a daily basis. And that to get to that point is really takes a lot to of find out time what it is, and to find work. out what it is is really, it's really hard. There's you know, safety layer, safety layer. And even when I find out what it is, and even when I find out what it is, you know, my neural pathways have already have already 100%. been fixed to be able to think that way. So, so to challenge that, even if I know a lot what of it our... is. you know, knowledge, cerebral knowledge, and experiential implementation and execution. And we spoke about it, right? Imagine
1: someone is sitting there with this belief, right? They, like you spoke about, right? A Chaim Walder kind of situation. That everyone who's trying to help is really in it for themselves. No one is sincere. I can't trust any of them, right? So they're sitting this belief. This is not a belief for them. This is a fact, and it's proven out by life experience. And the most dangerous thing for them to do is to try to get help. So that, how, how are they supposed to go from there? Yeah, it's tough.
2: A hundred percent. You're chasing your own tail. They call it in psychology confirmation bias. Yeah. Confirmation bias. You know, this boy, you know, who, who got 60s and 50s at his test, at his test, and he decided he's a failure, he's, he's a moron, he's stupid, and, you know, nothing will disprove it. And then one day he gets 100 yeah, right. and he says, oh, the teacher cheated for me because he felt bad. And then you have another kid, the opposite, you know, <laughs> I'm a brilliant kid, oh, but you got a 50, yeah, because the teacher is a moron and he's dishonest and he doesn't know how to ask questions. Now you know, you grow up, you try to get into a relationship. Those confirmation biases are so so deep and you 100%. don't even see it because for me it's a reality. I'm I'm a stupid child. I'm I'm a brilliant child. So it's uh, so 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 to, to 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 come so when we talk about advice for addiction, I think Ellie, if I could sum up what you're saying and, and just uh maybe sharpen a few points that could be relevant, it is so important. It is so, so important. First of all, to be able to have Huge. self-compassion. Huge. To be able to understand that addiction... And all issues. I don't think addiction is different.
1: I've spoken to people with, people, say, people with all sorts of issues and the rules apply. The same rules apply.
2: All right. And it, it's liberating when you could when you could know you're not in an eightly evil and you're not in an eight addict. Your soul was not born to be a slave to addiction. There there's, There may have been things... That happened or things you're struggling with from inside or from outside. And the addiction was your brain's way of somehow surviving. Somehow making sense of a very chaotic life. And to be able, number one, to have compassion. To really, really have compassion. Because the shame is such a killer, that shame. Like you said, so the much shame more. drives us more into addiction. And number two, number two, it's so important to have a support system. We need people that we can be open with. We can cry in their presence. We can laugh in their presence. We need good mentors, good friends, camaraderie. We cannot heal in solitariness. It just does not work. When we go back to our loneliness, all of the biases and all of the anxiety and the traumas are reinforced. It's so important. Now, I know you may be living in a community. You may be a Rebbe. You may be a Rosh shiva. You may be the gabai of a big rebbe. You may be a tycoon. You may be b- the big biggest baltsdaka, or you may be just a good nice man or woman. And it's who you're gonna open up to? Who you're gonna open up to? Your, your chavrusa, your, your rabbi. But I tell you, <laughs> f- find find somebody. Find find a mentor. Find a therapist. Start opening. You, we must have support. We must. 100%. People live in secrecy for years, and it doesn't it doesn't work. And I think another very important element is. We need guidance from real experts. We need people who are experts in this field. Get guidance get, and if it doesn 't work for you, go go somewhere else. Not everybody works for everybody and remember when you fail, don 't let your failure <coughs> completely derail you right I mean Sheva Yipold santik Vakam, as Ali said, failure is inherent to this process because <laughs> the addiction wasn 't created in one day. <laughs> You know, Rome wasn't built in one day, it's not destroyed in a single day. It's really it's really a process. The awareness may happen in a moment, but the execution of it can take a very, very long time and have compassion for the fact that you may fail because you're dealing with some, some serious obstacles. One day they may not be serious, but right now they're very serious and... And it's so important to be able to celebrate your successes and to celebrate your victories and to be able to have that transparency and to realize that there's life beyond addiction. There is a self that can be liberated, that can be emancipated. Your soul is not contaminated at its core. It's just impossible. The soul is a kami mal, It's a derivative of divine consciousness and therefore it's just not contaminated. It is not broken. It is not a piece of junk. And garbage, you are not the scum of the earth. There is scumness that has attached itself to you, and and we all have to work. Right, on, that's on that's one of the things
1: it. that's interesting about the shame is oftentimes we feel shame and we say we feel disgusting, right, because we did this, such behavior. But the fact that we feel disgusting by the behavior means it's not us, like <laughs> us beneath that. Otherwise, what would be what would be disgusting? You know, JLI shared a video today of I don't know who the gentleman was. It was a, the gentleman was it was a short video. Um, But he said that – he mentioned there was a Harvard study where they tracked a bunch of people to see what was the single um, most uniform determinant of success for people. And what it was was having one person that they can generally reach out to and ask for help in those situations, meaning even people who have good lives – and do well. They don't have major mental health issues and everything else. At some point in time, they're going to need to reach out to someone and say the three hardest words there are to say in the English language. I need help. And not having that is almost a guaranteed, um, almost guaranteed that we fail. And that's why this silence is so damaging because someone is struggling and everyone's going to be struggling in different ways and different points and not having that address or someone we can call and say, I need help. Right? In my case, the fact that in that moment when I felt so demoralized, I was able to call my therapist, who then gave me the number of a second individual. Who, when I walked out of that place after that top shelf experience, which I described, and I said, "We're two from here. Where does my addiction want me to go next?" But I had a number to call and say I need help, and I felt his compassion. And I felt his care when I called him. That was uh, that was important. If we can give a couple practical things, so let's say with porn addiction specifically. So with porn addiction. It's a little complicated because, A, we have to understand what is porn addiction and what is not. A guy called me, he says, you know, I feel terrible. I watched porn again and I promised myself I wouldn't. I said, okay, when did you watch? Last week, one time. When was the time you watched before? Six months before. I said, congratulate yourself and move on. There's nothing to talk to me about. Like there are people who are uh, who are struggling in very, very real ways. So for those, you know, um, I, there's a website, Guard Your Eyes, right, which offers – Many different people, um, tools for porn addiction. They have an assessment that they offer. Fairly really thorough assessment someone can go through. Say, how severe is your porn use? If we're suffering in silence, we don't know what severity is. Go there, answer your questions, and they'll tell you where you're at. For a lot of people, going to 12-step meetings is not necessarily the answer. For me, for example, I went to 12-step meetings, and my problem was beyond porn. Like I said it to people, prostitutes and other such things. So the meetings did good for that. But porn was viewed by most people in the meetings as something that was almost a harmless um, situation. Most of them were much older. They didn't, they weren't raised into porn, like raised by porn. Sex education wasn't from porn like it was for myself and even more so for teenagers today. It was older guys who had struggled in different ways. And they said, okay, porn is kind of a, this this harmless thing. These other behaviors with people, which are much more dangerous, sometimes even illegal, like those are the ones we have to worry about. So there wasn't really a space I can go to to talk about porn use, I, w- I would think like if someone just had that problem, should they even come to this place? So I know there is a 12-step meeting Porn Anonymous or something, which deals just with those pro- those problems. So it's sometimes difficult to get your arms around um, around this issue, like where do I start in the process? But if someone knows that they have a true addiction, then in my experience, something like the 12 steps and that support that it gives you is amazing. The 12-step has its limitations. It doesn't do anything for trauma. It doesn't do anything for that. So, we also have a uh, a therapist. In the last week or so, I was introduced to the what therapist. seems to me like the last a. Week or so, I was to and a therapist, and a therapist who's 100%, 100%, first in trauma. A lot of trauma, and we're seeing it more and more 100%. now. So, talk therapy has its limitations. It's it's good in a way, it can deal with the symptoms, and it can help you with, um, yeah, reframe beha- behaviors Reframing. and stuff like that. But, you yep. know, several weeks ago, I did a, a breathwork ser- session with. Uh, with Mayor Kay, who's a, uh, a recent addition to the breathwork therapist scene. And I sat the group of 30 people and I saw the process, like we went through. And me, I've gone through so many breathwork sessions and psychedelic experience and everything and what it did for me in that space. And I have no shortage of people to talk to and everything else, but it's like that kind of somatic healing that can enter the body and, uh, and allow us to heal. But what I do want to say is this group I, I met just last week. Uh, they were nice enough to share this, um, event with many of the much of their audience and some of the this audience came from them um, their uh, name is okay clarity and what they do is it's really nice within the jewish community people reach out to them and they help them find the right therapist for them like for myself people reach out to me it's the call i get more than anything else and i have limitations if it's uh someone dealing with exactly my issue i probably have someone To direct them to, as long as they live in the place that, that I know, but suddenly they don't. So I was, I was very happy to see that there was, it's actually a business, which I'm a big fan of businesses sometimes tackling problems and not just nonprofits, which does this. They don't charge the patient, but they actually guarantee to someone like, Hey, we vet our therapist. We look through it. So to me, it's a nice tool. I've been sending people to it recently, okclarity.com to say, go ahead and like have that, uh, have someone you can talk to can help you find that right space. But the number one thing to do, in my opinion, the number one thing to do is anything we want to solve, find someone who's done that. So sometimes there's a bakr who's struggling heavily with porn addiction. You're going to go to your Mashpia. It's nice to talk to him, but don't take the advice too seriously unless he tells you that he struggled with this problem. And... And he's looking to uh, get out of it. So for myself, listen, I can't, I can't answer everyone, and I do as many things publicly so people can hear some of those thoughts. But if someone feels a need to reach out to me, by all means, on Instagram I is one way, ellinash at gmail.com, reach out, and I'll do my best to uh, to help and direct in the problems that I have uh, th- that I have experience with. But I, th- I think that's so important.
2: Is and I and I want to take the I want to <laughs> take the moment. I didn't ask permission to salute Ellie on behalf of everybody who's watching or is going to watch, because here's a person, he does not get paid for this, but he literally took all of his experiences, from anxiety to child molestation to, to serious addictions, and today has turned all of these dark experiences into a catalyst and a springboard. To help not hundreds but thousands and thousands of people who reach out to him by email or Instagram or WhatsApp or phone or these webinars. And I just want to salute you because here we have an example of, you know, talk about transformation, of darkness, and you. delight. Thank you. Thank you, Ellie. <laughs> and he, he, does not, he does not get a penny for in this. In fact, it costs. The but it's good.
1: Listen, it's, I get paid it's in social currency and
2: it's, uh, it's wonderful. Uh, Exactly. He gets paid in spiritual um, currency. Yeah.
1: And uh, by the way, it's one of the aspects, (laughs) one of the aspects of staying sober. So I, my, my motives weren't completely altruistic. It's possible that I pushed the, uh, pushed the boundaries of this a little bit, but one of the ways we stay sober, you know, they say in 12 steps, they say we keep what we have by giving it away. And some of the times it's a crazy advice, but try it when we're really like in our head about something. Sometimes we call someone. This is not a first step process. This is not like the first step. As we're further in and we get caught one day in a situation, sometimes you want to call someone and ask for help. Instead, reach out to someone who's struggling and then listen to their story for 20, 30 minutes, but really listen, truly listen, take them in and see how you feel after, see how you feel afterwards. But not the first step, but not not the first first step because unfortunately there are way too many people who are helping others to avoid dealing with themselves. So it's not the first step, but it's, in fact, in the 12 steps, it's the 12th step. It's the 12th step, is service. I
2: would also, I would also mention, we talk about practical solutions, I think one thing that we could right away begin is, addiction leads very swiftly to lying and deception. If you are lying in your life, that is feeding usually something lethal. When we could tell ourselves, I'm not going to lie anymore, I'm done. I'm going to have to face what is happening in my life. This becomes an impetus to be able to deal with situations. When you stop lying in your marriage, you stop lying to your employer, your employees, your siblings, your parents, friends, classmates, partners, etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera. It, it puts you in another place. It's, it's the genesis of recovery. And there's something else. You may come to somebody and talk about addiction, maybe the head of your yeshiva or your rabbi or a friend, and he may say, you know what? Start learning Gemara every day. Start learning Musr every day. Start learning Hasidus every day. Daven with a minyan. Have more kavanah by davening. Say Tehillim. Which are all amazing and beautiful pieces of advice that we should all enhance and grow in. But unfortunately, two years later, you see it hasn't helped. It hasn't helped. Because sometimes it's not about that. It's really not about that. Sometimes there's a deep-seated trauma that is poisoning your entire system and all your Torah and all your Davening and all your mitzvahs and all Tehillim and all the Musa. It's, it's all beautiful, but it's being experienced through the lens of a deeply broken human being. And God tells us, go to people who are experts. 100%. I deal. think people turn... And Torah and Davening can give you the confidence and the fortitude to trust that God is with you in your journey and that you're not tarnished in your essence. But it's just important for people to understand, because to have an extra shear is amazing, but sometimes that's not dealing with the addiction, and we need to be able to turn and get the right help, the right help. Yes, if I'm turning to porn one hour a week, it may be boredom, you know what? if you can exercise, if you can create a good schedule for yourself if it's working avoid it's working, that, and that may be eliminated, but if there's a deeper addiction it's, it's working, it's working, great, you know. Go to a shir at that hour and wonderful and don't go home this way or go, don't go to sleep at this hour, whatever it is. You'll figure it out and then it's awesome. But if it's not, don't delude yourself and don't become hopeless. Don't become hopeless. There are deep-seated beliefs, compassion, empathy, honesty, authenticity. And, uh, I just want to say something. You know, people often say, Oh, it's just the Yetzirah. It's just the Yetzirah. We all have a Yetzirah. Why are you having a webinar? There's a Sahara, We have an evil inclination. Haven't you heard that, <laughs> Rabbi Waiwa? You never learned the Gemara. And brachas that we have a yetzahara. I did learn the Gemara that we have a Sahara and I believe we have a yetzahara. In fact, I also have a Sahara, and not such a small one. But all of our conversations here is are not to eliminate the idea that we have a yetzahara. It's to understand the yetzahara. <laughs> it's to understand. If I have an opportunity to tell my Yet stop! Stop! Stop. <laughs> and the Yetzirah says, okay, I'm stopping, I'm stopping, I'm stopping. <laughs> Make a lechayim, and you're good. But some of us have Yetzirah, we have tried to say stop for 20 years. And the Yetzirah didn't listen. Stop, stop, stop. We rewarded ourselves, we screamed at ourselves, we punished ourselves, we hated ourselves, we embarrassed ourselves, we mortified ourselves. And guess what? The Yetzirah didn't Stop. You want to understand this guy. And you know what you'll find out? You may find out that this Yetzirah developed not because you're bad, but because something happened to you, maybe in second grade. And you know what you'll discover then? That the real I is not an addict. The real I existed pre-second grade. The real I is actually the most beautiful, innocent, kind-hearted, generous, happy child. And then, wow, you could look at the Sahara and say, so this addiction is not the only identity I know. And if I can start experiencing that in my body, in my visceral system, in a somatic way, and retrain my brain, just imagine how liberating it is. So this is exactly the path to deal with the Sahara. This is not a path to absolve you from responsibility. This helps you take responsibility because suddenly you're not a slave You're not a monster. You're not a barbarian, sick, misogynist, narcissistic, self-centered, careless husband or wife or father. You have a serious problem. Something happened. Let's find out. Let's identify that and let's see the beliefs that were created by that (coughs) event. And then say, you know what? Maybe I could challenge those beliefs if I could see that that event is what created those beliefs. It's, I don't have to believe this about me. I'm not the ugly, ugly, grotesque person who does not deserve to exist, who does not deserve to be loved, who is sinister and evil. I'm not. Wow. This is how you heal your Yetzirah. You transform your Yetzirah. Or at least, at least, maybe not be able to transform it, but at least you could quarantine it. It doesn't take over your whole life. It's not the only me. Do you know how liberating that becomes? This is the path to morality. This is the path to Yiddishkeit. This is the path to Yerushalayim. You can actually say, I can be in a relationship with God because I am not a slave to the prostitutes. I am not a slave to the gambling. I'm not a slave to the alcohol. I'm not a slave to pornography. One of those you mentioned, 100%. One of
1: those you mentioned. are a couple of words I have here just as reminders, (laughs) right? The things that I wanted to mention as. Um, as uh, uh, as it relates to the solution for addiction, I can say some of those words and commitment, honesty. Which you mentioned work, gentleness, humility, service, and spirituality. So I think we addressed the first ones, but spirituality. You had mentioned that this is the pathway to Hashem. In some cases, it's literally the only way. And I want to say this to. The, the rabbis who are listening, and some of them who question, "Why are we doing this? Why are we talking about these subjects?" You say, "Lashon haratzni is why are we bringing these topics out to the to service? Maybe we're invite, we're we're introducing it to other people. I don't know who's meeting. Uh, who, I don't know what people are seeing on YouTube. That's you know, that's uh, better than this. You know what I mean? It's like it's YouTube we're talking about. We're advertising most of these on Instagram. I mean, it's not exactly like we're putting these in uh, in flyers and cheder. You know, breaking into mei to." Yeah. <laughs> to get people to listen into this. Like, you're talking about people.
2: Oh, well, may I share it? I'm sure, I'm share sure, share but I'm saying, too. like,
1: so, <laughs> there's, a why, there's, there's a reason why we're, we're doing I this. I get it, I get and it. And in my own case, having gone through the yeshiva system and everything else, right? So seeing, seeing that way of pushing everything to the side, and the only person I heard talk about porn, or not porn even, masturbation, when I was a teenager was you. It was the only one I heard. I got my sex education mostly from pornography, and then the students, um, the student, the, the the students around, what they knew, right? All of the ignorance they had, and then we can share our ignorance together. But you had come to my yeshiva when I was in Montreal and spoke, and it was so refreshing for myself and for others there that here is someone talking about what we're actually struggling with. So you're learning every single day. You're learning the terror. You're learning this. But my day to day struggle that I'm going at night, fe- uh, go- going to sleep at night, feeling terrible about. No one has spoken about. And then here came YWYY to, uh, Montreal and mentioned that those terms, it wasn't, it wasn't as clear as we're doing here in this webinar, but it's also a different day, a different time. And I'm sure you have a different understanding of the size and scope of the problem, but it was something. It was there. Like, Hey, this is a, this is a problem that exists. But as part of the solution, what I needed to get for myself is a relationship with God. In 12 steps, they it. we need to believe in a higher power. This is what it is. And I found it, if anything, more difficult, more difficult to cultivate a relationship with God in the beginning stages because of my upbringing. That there was some sort of religious trauma, religious abuse associated with it. When I saw the word God, I shuddered. I don't want anything to do with this. I already had all of these messaging. So some rabbis who are delivering messages, we have to be careful, is that, People are saying it, as you said in last webinar, as the word of God, none of the word of this, this rabbi, as the word of God. And then there's, then later on, when the solution that is needed is a relationship with God, they say, I've tried this, I know God. That's why I always remind myself, and, uh, I learned this in Yeshiva, actually. We were woken up when we were in, uh, in, in, in Mexico for Yeshiva with Naim Wagner. Someone used to wake us up in the morning and say, good, So taste and you will see that God is good. So I always tell people, I say in recovery all the time, or people who are starting to say, I understand, you know everything about Hashem. You know all the songs and you've learned everything. This Hashem, this God that you think exists or doesn't exist or have a problem with, David Allah understands him? Okay, he said, time rukita Taste and you will see that God is good. Whatever this thing you're tasting, is it good? If it's not, it's not God. Keep searching. Okay, so that for me was something I said, okay, I'll keep going. I'll keep going. It's not That's beautiful. it's not there yet. I'm going to taste some deliciousness, some beautiful experience. And this I haven't tasted yet. So keep an open mind. So for some of the rabbis who are saying, like, <laughs> you know, maybe some of these things shouldn't be said, and they're probably talking more to you than to me. But maybe some of these rabbis that are saying it, understand that some of that messaging is what needs to be undone for someone to eventually relate to Hashem in order to heal. Because relating to Hashem is not an unnecessary component to healing. It's not like, okay, once you finally you know, figure your porn addiction out or your alcohol addiction or something else, then good, you come back to Shul. No, this is so essential. So essential to our healing is that we're given this. is a relationship with a higher power, with God. Personal relationship.
2: I should just say that most rabbis today that I'm in contact with, are are, are most, are very supportive of these types of conversations, because everybody has come around to see the profound damages to families and to individuals when people don't have a place to address this, and when Judaism is not accommodating the authentic struggles that we're dealing with. You know, I'm putting on tefillin every day. I'm keeping Shabbos. I'm eating matzah on Pesach. I'm sending shalach bonos Purim. I'm learning, but the true fabric of what's of my reality, what's happening inside of me, if Torah is not addressing this, so what people do is, you know, either they they create a a, a rupture between their religious self and their so to speak emotional self, and their religion mm-hmm. becomes dead or numb. Right? Or really, they become very disillusioned and cynical and very negative. Or they force themselves not to feel and become very cloistered and and inauthentic. And all of these can be catastrophic. Or what often happens is they project it as anger and judgmentalism and vindictiveness. And really, you know, the reality of Torah has to be able to address every aspect of the human condition. And of society, especially in today's generation, (laughs) things are moving so 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 fast. You know, if our Judaism remains stuck in a narrow little corner, where where anybody who who's dealing with something, you know they 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 can't they can't find a conversation there. I think we 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 are depriving our people from from the infinite richness that their heritage. That's been my experience, especially over the last. It's very, very important. I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll tell you something also. You know, Judaism has parts that for many generations we were told this is only for the mystics, for the tzaddikim, for the sages. You know, when you're 40, you'll learn it. When, when you're 60, if you finish shas, you know, if, you, if you're a brilliant mind, if you're a great tzaddik. <laughs> okay, Chabad doesn't have this struggle. But in many circles. You know, you just keep you're just a good Yeshiva boy, a ben learn Gemara, learn Mishnabura, learn Shulkanarach, you know, davim with Kavana, learn a little misilis Shar whatever. Which is beautiful and amazing. But I feel in today's generation the challenges and the opportunities are so expansive and so deep. You talk about healing models, you talk about psychedelics, you talk about trauma, you talk about meditation and all the experiences that people are exposed to, and everything that's happening, you know, LGBT challenges, transgender, transgender challenges, we need to up our Judaism. We need to find the infinite depth in Judaism and make it accessible to the masses. We really need to make it accessible to the masses. And even people who have, you know, nibbled before and touched on on. What you would call Kabbalah, Chasidis, Phnomisatara, the soul of Torah that deals with spirituality and transcendence and the oneness of the universe. Many Jews ran to Buddhism to be able to experience oneness and meditation, not knowing <laughs> that mystical the that, that core of Judaism is, is, is all about oneness and all about finding oneness. But today we really, we, we this is, I would say, one of the urgent calls of the hour to be able to revisit our deepest parts of Judaism, Atar, the core of Judaism, and make it accessible and show people how the message we received at Sinai can truly, can truly accommodate, not only accommodate, enrich and invigorate and elevate our lives to the true, true light that our lives, we can, be, we can become true embodiments of divine light in this world within our struggles and within our issues. So it's a very, very unique times in that sense. Very promising, but also, you know, I think there's a great, great obligation on all of us. Someone shared with me area. recently. You can't dumb it down anymore. Don't give your children dumbed-down <laughs> Judaism. They're too smart, they're too deep, and they're going to hear too many things. They're going to hear too many things. You know, if a person is experiencing plant medicine, or a person is going has gone to twelve st- is going to twelve steps. Or a person is in therapy for many years. Or you're into somatic or or breathing. Or you're struggling with, with sexual issues. You know th- these are very very heavy realities and awareness that people are coming to. If all Judaism can tell you is stop, this is evil. This is good. <laughs> you know just be like your older brother and and stop disturbing us. We lose most of our people. And we lose the best and the brightest and the deepest and the most sensitive and the most sophisticated and the most spiritual and the most and, and those who have, who have the deepest pain. But it doesn't have to be that way because Torah is really the blueprint for humanity but we have to, for this, open ourselves up to the full truth of Torah. And the full truth of Torah is not just technical red lights and green lights. That's important, that's critical, it's the essence of allah But Torah is a holistic, universal, infinite approach to literally every aspect of the universe and every aspect of the miracle of, of of the human experience. Every one of my seventy trillion cells can be can and needs to be addressed by the full majesty are you saying of, that, of Torah tradition. Are you saying
1: how are you, how can so, uh, you as a rabbi or other rabbis not be teaching Torah in a way that relates to the depth of the Human pain, which means we need the depth of the Torah experience, like the, the depth of Torah to meet us there as well.
2: Yes, exactly. So, if people were not dealing with pain or not dealing with trauma or not exposed to all of this, and there are such people, you know, let's call it, you know, more sheltered, more structured, fine with the system, doing well, happy, wonderful, amazing. But, but listen, I'm not exaggerating, and you know this to be true. I know this about you. I get. Literally approximately 200, between two and 300 right. letters a day. Not a week, not a month, a day. Sometimes a little less, sometimes a little more. And these are from men and women and teenagers from London to Paris, from Melbourne to South Africa, from Crown Heights to Lakewood, from my own little neighborhood here in Rockland County, to Brak and Kiryosafar and Jerusalem, and everyone in Be- and, and Los Angeles and Brazil. <laughs> Of, of of teenagers and women and men who are all dealing with stuff, whether it's theological, emotional, psychological, spiritual. I can't just tell them all, you know, uh, you're not learning enough, you're not religious enough, you're not nitzrus enough. Go say Tehillim, or just tell you it's hard to stop. And they're no. they're coming to me. Many of them have gone to therapists, so they go to therapy because they're they're Jewish, and they want a relationship with Judaism. What does Judaism have to say to me when I became aware of something maybe that happened to me terribly, sexually or emotionally? What does Judaism have to say to me? If the only thing Judaism says is respect your father and mother, even if you grew up in the most dysfunctional family and they abused you, I can't have a part of that Judaism. If all that Judaism tells me is that this is the way that God wants and every other way is evil and therefore I'm evil and sinister, you cut me off. People need to be able to feel a Yiddishkeit that really, really is so comprehensive and thorough that it's the blueprint of the universe. So if there's a development in plant medicine, if there is a development in any healing model, if there's a development in science, in cosmology, in physics, in psychology, in biology... And realize that these developments are happening in a pace that the world in the next 50 years is going to change more than it changed in 5,000 years. It already changed in the last 100 years more than it changed in 5,000 years.
1: More in the last 10 than probably in the last 5,000. Right? 5,
2: if we believe what the Medrash says and the Zoya says, that God used the Torah as a blueprint to construct the universe, and that includes construct <laughs> all the plants to construct the animal kingdom, to, to construct every frog, every reptile, every fish, every mammal, every bird, every bush, every shrub, and every biological system. And the blueprint of that is Torah. W- w- where does Torah address all of this? And for this, we must, we must excavate what's called Pnimius Satayra, the full infinite core of Torah, that for generations we were told is, is not for us, but this is a generation. Rashi says that Mashiach is going to reveal the deepest secrets of Torah, the beginning of the Song of Songs, the Rambam says that in the time of the Gula, the whole world Mm -hmm. will be occupied with divine awareness because all physical comforts will be there. The Rambam (laughs) understood about artificial intelligence and he knew that in a few years, 99% of labor won't be needed anyway. So what is everybody going to do all day? See, the Rambam says everyone will be occupied with divine awareness because the the, the oneness with infinity is, is an infinite occupation, so to speak. And I think the development of history is bringing us, it's almost forcing us into this era. You know, what is God? What is Torah? What is Halacha? What is Mitzvah? It encompasses every aspect of relationships, of of, of identity, of self-actualization, of spiritual growth, of authenticity. And if Judaism is demanding from any of us to close ourselves off, to experience, to self-awareness, to self-compassion, and to self-actualization in the deepest sense, we are selling a Judaism that is amputated, that is distorted, that is, that is inauthentic. Thank you, right.
1: Um, you know the, uh, the song we used to sing, and she was, Eim <laughs> Kasimar? So...
2: <laughs> they still right. sing it. They so sing it at all the weddings. The Baal
1: Shem Mashiach, when are you going to come? And he said...
2: The Baal wrote a letter, he wrote a letter to his brother-in-law, it's an unbelievable letter, and he says, Rosh Hashanah, 1746, he had Aliyah San Now nobody ever knew what Aliyah San means. Today we understand it a little bit. Aliyah San means you have an experience of your soul not stuck in the physical embodiment. So it's almost like your soul has a vision of, 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 of a pure reality like it was pre birth and the balshemtiv knew how to go to those places <laughs> internally organically it was incredible. the balshemtiv knew, and he writes to his brother in law I had an experience, and my soul most of us like these words were so- just 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 an example like San ashama right? most people just looked at it okay i 'll believe the Baal Shem Tev, I'm, I'm, i live i believe in but you know it's <laughs> I can even talk about it, I can relate to it, my, my soul doesn't go up, my, my, my soul, I go to sleep maybe, but that's it. But today we all know that you know these experiences you say, are, are things that are with relevant, breath work, with plant medicine, becoming with a more lot of and these more relevant modalities. every year. People are experiencing something that definitely feels like it resembles yeah, that. The, 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 the real challenge, and this is what the Baal Shem Tev taught, and this is our real challenge, is integration. Because the real challenge of Judaism, we're going to do, in, the, in our third webinar, we're going to be dealing with psychedelics. The real challenge is to make it part of who I am. Right? And, and this was the, one of the most profound contributions of Hasidic spirituality and Kabbalah was the integration of these truths, which today we have the words and the modalities to help us really integrate it, that it becomes part of our internal day, day consciousness, uh, which is incredible. Right? Yeah, so so the Ba'a Shem Tov describes which, what so The Ba'a Shem Tov describes this.
1: What struck me about
2: the and letter, just I go
1: into it, is that the song, the way it was, the way, like the few words it captured, was when is Mashiach going to come when your teachings will be spread forth? And it was like, okay, we got to go out and spread the teachings. What does it mean? I don't know, a sicha here or a there. We'll print it, we'll publish it. A tanya in a new community in Kenya, which never had a tanya. This is what it means. And then when I saw the whole thing, I think it was Project Chasidis, like put a video out of the whole letter. I was like, hold on, there's a different... There's a different aspect to the story here. So now no, it's, just it's want, incredible.
2: Yeah. The, the, the Baal Shem Tov writes I went into the chamber of Mashiach and I asked him, When will, when are you going to come? Which basically means, When will the world <laughs> finally heal? <laughs> and he said, When your wellsprings will spread out and disseminate outside to the furthest corners of the universe. And the Rebbe used to say that sometimes the deepest chutzah is in in yourself. To those parts of me that are outside. The dirty parts. The traumatized parts. The broken parts. Chutzah. Those parts that make me feel like an alien. I'm a foreigner. I don't give a hoot about any of this. And he says, when your light, when your teachings will be able to be brought into this place, Mashiach will come. Why? Why? Because that is Mashiach. <laughs> it's not two separate things. It's not like, oh, you spread the Baal Shem, the teaching, we'll snap the fingers, and the donkey will emerge with Messiah. That's a little bit immature. What he was saying is, that is, Mashiach is redemptive consciousness. Mashiach is a state of consciousness. The prophet Yeshaya says, the world will be filled with divine awareness like water covers the sea. There'll be oneness in humanity. There'll be harmony within ourselves. We'll be able to experience our oneness with each other because we're one with the divine. We'll be able to look at the world from a microscopic spiritual perspective and we'll see that the world is divine energy. That oneness is our organic state. It was only through a monstrous reductionism, which Kabbalah calls Tzimtzum, that we we experience the trauma of ego. Where I'm protecting myself, and you're protecting yourself. And you all know there's moments <laughs> when that ego dissolves. So what he was telling the Baal Shem Tev is when this consciousness, when these teachings pervade the universe in an integrated way, which means it's not only when I go on some trip, but it becomes integrated, that is what, that is what redemption looks like. This is, Eli, our historic opportunity now. You know, people are discussing the conflict between Judaism and healing. is taking away from religion. This is we're it. We're missing the point. No. All, all of the healing opportunities is to be able to help us get to the core of Judaism and, and bring that to the world, and the whole world will heal. That's what the Jewish people were chosen for. <laughs> don't, don't be afraid. This is it. This is, this is our greatest opportunity. You don't know what Judaism is. That's what he was telling the Baal Shem Tov. You have the wellsprings. Because the Baal Shem revealed this type of consciousness. The whole Judaism by the Baal Shem was really an opportunity of, of celebration of oneness. The greatest miracle of the Baal Shem was that his teachings are trauma-free. <coughs> and I'll tell you something. I grew up, I grew up at the feet of the <sighs> Lubavitcher Rebbe. Excuse me. The Rebbe... The Rebbe lived through the trauma of our parents and grandparents, right? Stalin and Hitler, he lost much of his family. And I would say one of the greatest miracles of the Rebbe was that whenever I heard him speak, I did not hear trauma. I did not hear trauma. I don't know how that happened, because he had a hard life, and he, he, you know... (laughs) There was, there was there was a, a guula energy in his words. It was like from a place that is beyond trauma. Faith in humanity. Hmm. And he wasn't naive. I've seen the Rebbe many years. He was not a naive man. He was not naive. You couldn't fool him. He knew very well corruption. He would talk about it. He knew very well about cynicism and disappointment. But he just, he, he his soul, like the Baal Shem Tov, was rooted in a place that was really trauma-free and, Growing up, I could cry when I talk about this because I had some difficult experiences as a child. But for me, till today, that's like an anchor of safety, an anchor of safety where I feel innocence and purity and love. And it was it's it's it's, a, it's amazing because there were people that sat in 770 by the Rebbe's Fabrengens, and they were, you know, they were, some of them did really bad things. Yeah, 100%. Like in every community. So so but to be able to be able to have that so those are the well, wellsprings that i think are are you know really it's it's and i should just say not everybody who claims to learn chasidus is in touch with these wellsprings because i'm not talking about mathematical spiritual gymnastic equations of spheroids and worlds and lights i'm not talking about that that's all good i'm talking about the, the visceral experience of infinite consciousness that the Baal in, in the letter the letter
1: continued as I recall that people will understand I, th- I think
2: Yichudim or letters and as a way to access direct yeah, they'll make they'll what? make Yichudim like you <laughs> they're going to unify the worlds so, like you do the suggestion of direct unify experience the
1: like a direct experience
2: of meaning this idea if I've yeah, I think, listen I, I, You know, I don't think this was uh, the, the, Everyone will be exactly the Baal There are uniques, we spoke last week There are souls that are just Have certain gifts, obviously Just like people have different talents, there are souls That have different gifts, but something Something of this relative to who I am To each and every one of us is going to become the Even to be able to understand the terminology is important
1: being. I want to say one, one more thing before we get To um, homosexuality that's part of the conversation is that, you know, through my journey of reconnecting to Judaism, right, which today is a, it's a strong connection. It's a connection based on uh, um, free choice. I wouldn't always have choice. It was guilt, it was shame, there was fear, there was this. It's not based on any of those things. No fear. guilt, no fear. It's, not based on fear. No else. it's a hundred <laughs> percent choice. I love this, I do this, I'm you know, I'm uh, a proud. I consider myself a, a messenger of the uh, a shliach of the rabbi, just like just like others. And I reconnected to that through my process. But there were forks in the road that could have gone the other way. There were 100 percent forks in the road. And I say this story often, and I want to repeat it, I want to repeat it here as well is that one of my sponsors, my early sponsors, was a Christian monk. And the reason it was recommended to speak to him was because there was a Jewish fellow who I was, who was my, my sponsor, who didn't quite have the spiritual sensitivities that I felt I needed for my healing. He kind of said, like, hey, higher power, God, okay, your group will be the higher power. He was more of an atheist Jew, and he found, that, and he found healing in that way through that. I needed something different. I needed spirituality. So a friend of mine in the program who I was you know, kind of at the same time, you, know, you have different people in these groups. You have people who kind of came in together, and then you have the old timers. So I was talking to him and sharing with him this about you know, some of the difficulties and challenges I was having in the program, and he said, I think you should talk to my sponsor. He's a very spiritual guy, and I think you'll connect with him. So I speak to this guy, and he was, in fact, at a real depth of spirituality. Where did he get it? He was a Christian monk, and he had his issues, and he had his addictions, and he, a full-scale Christian, Christian monk. And with this individual, he took him to church, and they would pray together, and they had all those things. And for whatever reason, he told me, and I was open. I was open, like, uh, humble, desperate, and tell me where I need to go. He said to me, Ellie, you will know your healing has taken root, A moment. You'll know your healing has taken root when you reconnect to Judaism. And the reason I got emotional when I shared that is because had he invited me to a church, I would have went there. And, and that's the risk that people are playing with. That's the risk. Is that when people don't get it within the yeshiva system, when t- people don't get it from voices like yours and the others, is that they step out because they still need it. That's a, that's a need. That's a need for certain people. And when they step out, that can go in any direction because they're open. And in that space, I knew what I needed. And it, the same is true with a lot of other modalities. People have opinions on 12 steps. People have opinions on plant medicines. Your opinion does not matter people who are going to go for healing are going to go for healing if you tell a person who's suffering from anxiety that it's not okay to do plant medicines because you have an opinion that it's a they're going to go anyway they're going because they need the healing so do and the Rebbe talks about this in, in Asikha about transcendental meditation open your own centers I think call of the shofar was a travesty of all travesties I don't know what happened there I don't know what it was but it was shut down without offering an alternative. Obviously, there were people there who were desperate, desperate for some sense of peace, of inner peace, of freedom from the traumas and struggles they were, going, they were going through. And they find a home and they find a place. And rabbis go and shut down the place. Don't shut down the place without opening another center that gives just as much of the solution. You want to do it in a kosher way, do it in a kosher way. But what you're saying, Robert Jacobson, is so important, is that Judaism has to meet people at these places and has to be able to offer these solutions to these people. And if there are problems, and I've been part of plant medicine ceremonies that are problematic, and we'll talk about it, and I felt like there were things that right, didn't wasn't for a nice Jewish boy. But I wasn't a nice Jewish boy anymore. I also had all of this trauma and all these experiences, so great. Letters of condemnation against this or opinions about this are not going to help anyone. Do it, set it up in a way that's completely kosher and invite
2: everyone there because people are going to go, people need their healing the same way I needed Uh, it. And I need it. I, I just want to get to the, I want to get to the belief behind, I want to get to the belief behind it. Okay, and this is where we need so much humility. Many rabbis Parents, teachers, mentors, they mean well. If you do not understand the suffering that somebody is going through, be curious, educate yourself. Frankly, there are people, they communicate with me every day, they mean well, they're trying to serve God. They do not understand what it means that a person is broken at his core. They just don't. And you know what? Yeah, good for them. (laughs) Baruch Hashem. Thank God they don't. You, You have to understand the levels and magnitudes of suffering that people are going through. People who wake up every day with incessant anxiety, as we heard from Ellie before. People who walk into a wedding and they have a panic attack because of social anxiety. People who cannot connect emotionally with their spouse or children. People who cannot perform sexually. They can't have... Understand the suffering. Be empathetic. Be curious. You can't just tell them, stop, 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 stop. You can't. You just can't. You're not talking to them. You're not addressing them. They're going to look at you and say, okay, there's nothing that Torah has to offer to me. So be very, very, very humble and don't try, don't try to impose your comfort zones on Judaism and say, because this is my comfort zone, so this is all that God has to offer. Maybe you have questions, legitimate. But be humble. Understand and be sensitive to struggle. And if you're not, be humble about that as well. Say, so you know what? Thank God. It's like it's like people. You know, a lot of people today have children who, who are leaving Judaism. And they go for advice. And they always tell the parents, get advice only from people who have had children who left Judaism or... They have experience with hundreds or thousands of teenagers who have left Judaism. Don't get advice from a father or a mother who don't understand what you're going through. And they just say, tell him he has to put on a yarmulke. Tell her she has to take off the... the, 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 the. Tell her, tell her, tell her. <laughs> wow, brilliant. Tell her. As <laughs> though she hasn't been in this house for 17 years and she doesn't, hasn't heard 10,000 times the word sneers. Tell her, tell her, tell her. It's like telling a yitzhakara. stop, stop it's it's they mean well, but you, no, that's why I would so
1: yeah, if it wasn't a um if it, if it wasn't an invasion of privacy, I would say like stand read my phone, read my emails, read my messages, sit in on my conversations, and you see what people are experiencing the people i I speak to
2: and yeah and you ha- and you, you need to be humble, and if you don't understand, find out, ask, ask, but don't these are very sensitive things you know there's people who commit suicide on a daily basis. There are people who are overdosing. There are people who are getting divorced and families are becoming broken because there was nobody to help them I'll, in their time I'll traumas. tell you a story. <clears throat> so, so realize, we're not just talking about a theoretical halachic question about an ox goring a cow and we're not sure if the cow gave birth before the goring or after the goring and you're responsible for this or not for this. We're talking about literally issues that affect people's lives. And the opposite of life. 100%. And for generations. So before you impose your very holy agenda on Judaism and on everybody else, you may be right, but be curious, be empathetic, and don't believe that everyone who says the word trauma is trying to run away from responsibility. That is a very, very, very unfair accusation. You're talking about people ...who have been trying their best to live good lives... ...for 20, 30, 40 years... ...and they tried to work with the Yetzirah... ...and scream at the Yetzirah... ...and nothing helped... ...a guy who comes in and says... ...you know, he's having an affair with his secretary... ...for years... ...and he's trying to stop... ...and he's crying... ...and he's crying to his therapist... Help me stop, help me stop. I don't know what to do. Help me, help me. He went to the Kaisel. he went to Miran, he went to Karastir, he went to Uman, he went everywhere. But he's having he he can't help himself. His sexuality is is mishuga. it's chaotic. What are you gonna say? Stop, you're evil. And if you could and if you could show him, if you could show him that in second grade, maybe you can help him find out that in second grade. I'm not telling you a story, I'm not telling you theories. This kid started to be molested by people in his family from five till nine, from five to nine. And suddenly, you know what you do for this man? Suddenly he realizes and he discovers that he's actually not a monster. It's actually something that happened to him. And if it's something that happened to him, then maybe he could find the me that existed before it happened to him, which is still there. your power is always present even if it's an exile and for the first time in his life he could talk to his Yetzirah and he could tell his Yetzirah I know you developed when I was six years old when I was five years old but you know what I'm a big boy now and I have value and I'm not a Shmata I'm not a Shmata and suddenly he can fight his Yetzirah don't, don't be, be you know, yeah, you're talking about people's real, real lives. We I've seen it. There was someone sensitive. who called me,
1: a rabbi. Okay. And, you know, he was looked up to and everything else. How did he call me? He went to his mashbia. So she's struggling sexually. Okay. He was cheating on his wife. He wasn't able to have, physically have sex with his wife and he had a relationship with someone else. The rabbi said, listen, I don't know much about this. I know Ellie a little bit. Then he gave my, he gave my number. So I spoke to him, and as I was speaking to him, the guy had no hope, zero hope, zero hope. He wasn't even asking me for help to stop. He was asking me for help to stop obsessing. He's like, I can't stop, I can't. Like, this is my life at this point. And I said, you know, you're you putting your family at risk, you're putting your community at risk, you're putting yourself at risk. Like, there's a lot, lot riding on this. He couldn't understand me at all, nothing. It was like impenetrable. He just, why? Because he was hopeless. He didn't see another way out. He had tried for so many years. A certain way, he's like, "This is working for me." The only thing is the obsession; I cannot stop thinking about this woman I'm having an affair with. I want to be able to give my classes and be with my kids be with my, without thinking. I said, "Okay." Unfortunately, I don't know a way to to do that. But when I saw that I wasn't able to get through, and there was such so much at stake, I said, "Listen, I recommend. I know a guy in Costa Rica. I recommend you fly down there, yeah, for a, a plant medicine experience." Like ASAP, right? The risks are high. I mean, he's playing a very a community, his family, his health is like pretty serious stuff. He called the rabbi back and he told his, his mashpiyah, his rabbi. And he said, I'm recommend that I recommended that he go down to Costa Rica for for this uh, experience. So fortunately, in that regard, I said, listen, I don't know anything about it, but I'll call Eli. So I had a conversation with him and he said, do you think it can help him? He's like, I don't understand this. It's not something that I'd ever think about, but I recommended that he speak to you. You're telling me this can help him. I said, I'm not guaranteeing anything. But the guy's mind is not open. It's not open. And there's a chance that this will open his mind. So fortunately, he gave this rabbi, gave him the okay. He went, he had an experience, and what came up in his experiences, how many times he was sexually abused as a child, and he had never dealt with it. So he's sitting with an infestation. Inside him, multiple times of sexual abuse had never had had never addressed it, had no capacity to address it then fortunately, from this experience, it showed him one plus one equals two that the experiences he went through as a child, which he worked so hard to suppress is creating the issues he's having today what does this mean it means the only way for this guy to stop these behaviors like it's similar to what you're saying i'm just adding to it with an example there is no learning that's going to get this guy to, to to remove his obsession he was sexually abused and has massive issues he cannot physically have sex with his wife one of those reasons i don't know if you've heard of this uh term i think it's called the madonna complex have you heard of this it's a complex where people view women as one or the other Like either as a mother or a prostitute. Meaning they can't imagine that um, a decent um, woman will have sex. So any woman who's available for sex is not decent. And anyone who's decent is not available for, for, for sex. And it makes sense how this conflict can be created. Because if someone is introduced to sex at a very young age in a very shameful way. So they, so the association in the mind is shame and sex. Sex is a, sh- a shameful practice, but the body has needs. So he goes and finds it in a way that can't be his wife, but he loved his wife. He cared about his wife. And it was precisely because of that that he couldn't be intimate with her. And he needed someone who he looked down on in some way, but that's where he had his needs with. And he was caught in this obsession. To such an extent, I'm not saying this person had that complex, but I'll give you an example of it. It's, there is no way to solve this without going deep, looking at those experiences, and removing the trauma. Wow. Can we talk about homosexuality?
2: Wow, wow. You know, Ellie, I have an idea, I think, and, and I want to, I, I think if we should do now, because 10 o'clock, have another shift, maybe we could do now questions for a half an hour. And in our, we have a webinar in two weeks. We could do. So let me get to the first question. It's about
1: homosexuality. So let's let's. we'll address the question. It's the first question. Okay. Okay. So I, I think this is related to some uh-huh. of the wording which we used last time. It says, "Why is homosexuality something that we need healing from?" It seems that you are trying to address the people whom, in their lives, grapple with their attraction to the opposite sex. But my question is, why? Why is homosexuality looked at as a condition that requires healing? Your thoughts would be greatly appreciated.
2: Okay. You I think it's answer, appropriate for you, you to, answer to answer because
1: I, I think they're they're touching on words that they felt you used in the first um, discussion. I can answer it if you want me to, but I think they were touching on words that you used, so maybe it's a good idea to explain.
2: Okay. So it's first of all, thank you for the question and for the candidness of the question, and. I don't want to be here abstract and cerebral. I want to be very, very practical. The main function of our webinar here is people who are struggling with it. In their mind, they're struggling with it. In other words, if somebody decided that he is homosexual and he's fully, fully content with it and he's fully satisfied with it, that's a discussion. It's a fair discussion. Should he be challenged? Why should he be challenged? Why does the Torah prohibit it? It's a very fair question, a legitimate question, and it should be discussed. But I feel that the main function of our webinar here is people who do feel that it's a struggle for them. They would rather have not been dealing with it. Maybe they want to get married. Maybe they are already in a marriage. Maybe even if they don't want to get married, they're very, very committed to Torah and to Judaism. And they feel that this is something so negative that they're carrying, and that's the people we're trying to address. So these are people who feel that something is so, so challenging in their lives, and they want to have some support. Yeah, what I was going to say
1: is that who is reaching out to you about this and who is reaching out to me about this? Like where does my information um, around homosexuality come from, and where does yours? So my, my guess is, my assumption is that people who are reaching out to you are reaching out who are trying to figure out how to resolve their orthodoxy with their either homosexual experience or their homosexuality, whatever that is. It's those two things. Why would they call you otherwise, right? They're calling a rabbi for his opinion, how to resolve this, this this conflict. So that's where your experience comes from. In my case, who are the people that I talk to about these subjects are mostly people who are recovering from addiction. And the addiction had an element of homosexuality attached to it. And oftentimes, not all the case, one of of my sponsors, I mentioned my sponsor, one of my sponsors is gay. I've had sponsees who are gay and live that lifestyle, not Jewish, and live that lifestyle. And, you know, there's there's nothing for me to comment for them. I'm talking to people who had – who have homosexual attraction or have had homosexual experiences. And that is tied up to their addiction. And oftentimes there's specific shame ad, ad, attached to that. So that's where I'm coming from. So if there's a language that sounds like that, who am I talking to? I'm talking to the people that I see suffering in the way I've met them. And then I want to say to them, for example, someone struggling with porn. I spoke to someone not long ago who's struggling with porn. And I, he's like, I need to speak to a certified sex addiction therapist. I said, or porn addict. I, I don't know a certified sex addiction therapist that I can recommend. Why not go to a 12-step meeting? Because of the kind of porn I'm watching, the kind of porn I'm watching. I said, what is it? Is it gay porn? Is it transsexual porn? Like, what is the issue that you're having such a hard time with accepting about yourself? So he said, in fact, it's transsexual porn. I said, brother, I've been there too. I've been there too. It's okay. And so have many people. You want to sit there and figure out exactly what the attraction means from now until the end of time? Busy yourself. I don't know what to say. You want to get help? Go to 12 steps. Look at the size of these categories online. Most, right? Look at these sizes. There are many, many people watching these things. To figure out exactly what it means, we can spend Freudian psychology, right? We'll sit on couches and dissect us till the end of time. You want to get help and healing? Let's go. I know a place I know a place we can do it. Not to not to denigrate any of the work that certified sex addiction therapists said, but here I had a recommendation and I saw what was the struggle, a specific shame around this attraction, a specific shame around this. So who am I talking to? Someone who's struggling in that way, someone who's wondering because they had a, an experience in yeshiva with another boy and here they are married with five kids and am I really gay? Well, am I really gay? Well, what is this thing? What does it mean? Am I really? But there's so many of these ideas are introduced into the language and into the way we talk about these things that if someone did something or someone had a thought then it is their identity all the way until from now until the end of time when in reality sex sexuality is dynamic it changes it's i'm not saying it changes from orientation to orientation but there's different people in different times and different things and you know relax relax we don't need so much shame attached to these subjects let's heal let's all heal together and that's who i'm speaking to Right, So I think the same thing, my language is always going to convey the type of people that I spoke to about these subjects, just like your language is always going to convey the type of people you've um spoken to. I am not a rabbi, I'm not talking from halacha, I'm not a scientist, you're not a scientist, you're not talking, we haven't done
2: all evaluations,
1: who is and who isn't. We're talking from the people who've reached out to us. No,
2: And and we all need a lot of humility, and when we talk about this, it's very important, humility, no judgment. No vindictiveness. You know, you never judge a person if you're not sitting in their space, if you're not experiencing what they're experiencing. You need a lot of empathy around this. Yes, as somebody who is a Jew and an adherent to Judaism, the Torah prohibits homosexual intercourse. That's a prohibition. But to see the struggle as evil and to stigmatize people who are dealing with struggles they didn't even choose, they didn't even choose, is equally abhorrent. Yes, I believe that the creator of the world, as a blueprint to life, believes that there's certain types of relationships that are not good for you. And not only in the next world, but also in this world. But so much compassion and empathy is needed here, and it's completely not a contradiction. And we need a lot of humility. Somebody asks here, how can God say homosexuality is not allowed if people are born this way? It's not fear. You know, that's a very, very heavy statement you just said. People are born this way. It's very important to know that a lot of the scientific research about homosexuality has been stifled because politics has become a very, very major factor when it comes to the LGBT issue. It's just very important to understand. This is the least studied issue in science because of the tremendous pressure from so many different angles and perspectives. So we all need a little humility before making any blanket statement. I believe, I have asked some, I went to a few scientists, because I don't like to come emerge as ignorant, and I am ignorant in many areas. Has there been conclusive scientific evidence that a person is absolutely born that way? And it's just not true. There's so much ambiguity. There's so much sensitivity here. We may be born with certain dispositions, with certain sensitivities, and then with other factors happening, including sometimes very traumatic experiences or not traumatic experiences, but other times can bring it out, can actualize it. So it's just it's such a subtle, subtle, subtle thing, and it's important to be able to go on a journey and ask myself what is going on inside of me, what happened to me, because then you may discover a lot of very interesting things. Right. About I think yourself. that
1: the suggestion, which a lot of people are, are resistant to, which I understand. Is that um that homosexuality came about because of abuse or something like that? Who knows? Who knows any of these stuff? And maybe some people are born that way. Who understands? Right. And in certain things we can have a question mark. Someone right. once showed me—I forget we're at a barbanel or something like that, which uh, used in Hebrew terminology that even if someone had this, for, even if even if they had this from when they were born, I can try to find it. Meaning, let's say there is the possibility that someone is born this way. Okay. I mean, that doesn't change being able to have a conversation around uh around a certain topic. I know that it was like a it was a rabbinical question. I'm more addressing like this this link. I'm I'm more addressing this link, which I've heard a lot of, but how do I know? Do I know if my abuse turned into my porn addiction? I don't know. I can tell you for myself, my own experience, and everyone can do with this what they want. I was abused by an older man. And I was eight years old, and this guy was fifteen. So, as a fifteen-year-old, um, I'll be, I'll be somewhat, somewhat graphic. It was the very first time I felt a um, a, uh, a a penis of an adult. Right? Apologies for being graphic, but it is what it was. And after that, there was this intrigue around that. And I connected to that experience. Right? That experience tied to that. Wow. Um, To that, to to that, I never felt emotional love towards a man. I never had that. I never felt the, um, like the the romantic feeling towards women. But that that was a link that I made direct. That was a link that I made directly. But obviously, from that jump, we can't say someone else who feels the emotional pull towards women. And many people I've spoken to, by the way, say emotionally they're drawn towards women. Physically, they're also drawn towards men or only drawn towards men or something like that, right? There are all sorts of dynamics here at play. We don't know what's abuse and not abuse, but these always and never, I think, are very destructive for these conversation because we don't know. We don't know. What I do know and who are we talking to is people who are struggling with this and just say, it's okay, brother. Come home. <laughs> Come home. It's okay. Whatever it is, relax the shame. You're not alone. There's 7 billion people, but there's not 7 billion problems. There's anything you're dealing with there are hundreds of millions of people dealing with the same thing you're in good company as soon as you find the right person to ask for help and they understand you you will have a connection that's much deeper than the shame you feel this connection from the shame you feel come home everyone is welcome everyone is everyone can heal there's 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 space there isn't there's space for everybody there isn't these uh, these things that we have to put in boxes that no one can talk about and no one can say anything
2: Next question regarding the masturbation. How can I get away from it? The media is all filled with provocative images. How in the world am I supposed to get away with from it?
1: <laughs> we got to get you away from the media. It? <laughs> I don't know what to say. If you're, if that's what you're experiencing in the media, then get away from uh, from the media. I can say for myself, my my own experience. Yeah, get away I, from I, the I ran media a exactly. At the same time, I was getting sober and the Google search bar was very, very triggering for me. Just that, seeing the Google search bar was triggering. And it happened, when I say triggering, what happened sometimes was that just, I saw the Google search bar and and a search went in that, right, maybe the name of someone or something else, right, the name of an actress or something like that. And the search went in that would often populate pornographic images. So I had to lock down my porn, my were computer. So Google images wouldn't be accessible to me. And if I was working on a PowerPoint presentation for work, and there were times where I wasn't, I wasn't public about the fact that I had a porn addiction, For those five or six years I wasn't, I'd go to someone in my office, hey, can you snip a picture of this and this and email it to me? I'm having trouble on uh, uh, with my computer, it's not working. And Can you do this for me? So that's what I needed to do. And I didn't have a phone. And the, the, I didn't have an iPhone for a while. And when I did, it had all sorts of locks on it. Sometimes we need to do that in order to distance ourselves. Today, fortunately, I can work without these restrictions. But if someone is finding that experience, that the media is full of um, these kind of images, then they have to change the media for a while. They may need to distance themselves.
2: Excellent. Somebody asks a question here. Last week, uh, two weeks ago at the webinar, I felt something that you said and I got very upset. And that is the way you spoke about LGBT people. You intimated that it's bad, it's gross, it's problematic. You called it a trauma. That's a harmful response to LGBT Jewish people who just want love and acceptance. They don't want people judging them and their sexuality picked apart. Why is homosexuality such a taboo? We are normal people like everybody else. It's upsetting that the religious community is obsessed with it. Nobody follows all 613 commandments. We're taught to love every Jew and not to judge anybody. But as an LGBT person, I have been judged my whole life for it.
1: I hear it. Wow. Um, one, one thing I would say is I, I don't believe we mentioned transgender in the um, in the last. Yeah. No, LGBT, right. I don't believe we mentioned. LGBT. I don't believe we mentioned that. I'm saying transgender, so it's not it's not all one and the same thing. We spoke specifically about homosexuality. We didn't speak about bisexuality. So I, I'm not sure we're lumping, but there definitely seems to be a a trigger there that the person is sensitive to, and I understand that. And I think that to someone like that, I would answer, "We are your ally." In the sense that I, 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 unlikely, it's unlikely that I agree on certain things, right? Then I pointed to my Amikah. It's unlikely that I agree on certain things necessarily, but that doesn't mean that there's any less room for an understanding of their lifestyle, completely, or for understanding of their choices, or for acceptance of who they are as a human being, and for the recognition that this may not be something that they struggle with. But understand this: is that, and I'll speak a little bit for for Rabbi Jacobson in this case. You're coming onto a webinar with a rabbi. A rabbi is going to have to, like, he's not going to bend the Torah in order to make someone feel more comfortable. The Torah says what it says about these subjects. It has certain opinions about, about sexual behaviors. But what I often say for myself is how I can, there were periods of time where I was less observant of Shabbos and I, I never felt like I needed the rabbi I was going to, if I went to a home for Shabbos for a meal, to tell me it's okay that I'm driving on on Shabbos. I didn't want him to suggest that I'm struggling with Shabbos because I wasn't. I had no interest in keeping it at that time in life. So I wasn't struggling with it, and I I understand I could have been offended if he suggested that, but obviously that – there, there was no suggestion. There was nothing. He could have thought that on a higher dimension, my soul is struggling with Shabbos. I imagine that uh, any good rabbi does think that, but he never said he never said that. And I was fine. I was there. I didn't ask him to change the laws of the Torah for me and to say, no, but is it okay that I, come on, tell me, I really want to drive on Shabbos. I can't imagine doing it. And I didn't feel not accepted just because I chose to drive on Shabbos. And I think that we ha- we have to be from both sides, right? As for those who are, from is to say, okay, this is the person's choice and we accept and there's love and there's a place for them at the table. And for those who are choosing to live that lifestyle is say there's room for from people to be from. And obviously they have an, they, they have an opinion. On certain behaviors But the opinion is not All the way down to your identity And who you are The opinion is the same As it is for Shabbos All Jews should keep Shabbos All Jews should live Certain uh, Live in a certain way Fine It's a a beautiful It's a beautiful ideal But it's not putting anyone down In any way whatsoever And I don't I, I would hope that this person Can recognize That the gun they're holding Is much bigger than the trigger That pressed it
2: Nice Thank you, Ellie, for your beautiful words, which I concur to. I just want to add, and maybe, you know, just uh, add just one or two details. And that is, you know, I'm sorry if I came across as judgmental in any way. And I want to stand corrected. I'm not obsessed by it. I'm not obsessed with condemning this sin more than any other sin. Because, as I said, it's so important for all of us to be very humble, to be very loving to be very understanding of people's journeys. And as it says in the Ethics of the Fathers, don't judge another person until you do not reach his space or her space. And the Tzfasemah says, and you will never reach their space. And I say that to everybody, including myself, and anyone dealing with this or any other issue. But I do want to say something, and please take this with a spirit of, of, of love, of love and not non-judgmentalism. And then people who know me know that I'm not a judgmental person, and I deal with this all the time in a very, very compassionate way. Please, if I believe in terror, if I believe that terror is true, you may not, which I'm not judging you either, but if I believe that terror is authentic, I believe that God, the creator of the world, gave the Jewish people and all of the nations a blueprint how to live. And God says that there's a certain behavior that is not good for you and it's not good for me in this world and in the next world. In other words, it is poisonous for me and for you. Just like he would tell me about stealing or about adultery or about murder or about violating Shabbos or about eating onion kipper, right? And I see somebody doing something poisonous, I'm not going to be kind to them if I say, Oh, I don't judge behavior. If you want to eat poison, eat poison. That's cruel. That's cruel. If I care for you and I love you, I'm going to tell you that this is not good for you. I'm not judging you. And I'm not feeling superior to you. Trust me. I'm not feeling superior to you. But I'm going to tell a Jew, eating Ganyam Kippur is not a good thing. It's not a good thing. I'm not talking about if you need it for, for, for health reasons. And committing adultery is not a good thing. And engaging in another act that may be immoral according to Torah, is not a good thing. And I'm gonna say I, it's not a good thing. And it doesn't mean you're evil, you're not evil, and the struggle I will never judge. Ever judge. Ever, never judge. Or the non struggle also I'm not being kind if I Meaning just Meaning even request. the non
1: struggle you won't judge. Huh? Let's say some not struggling. God bless yeah, you. Or so. the not
2: struggle. I'm not I'm not judging the non struggle. I'm not judging the non struggle. But I, I'm I'm not being honest and I'm not being kind if I just say, you know, I think it's perfectly fine and it's as a legitimate relationship as any other relationship. I'm being dishonest with you. And from 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 my belief system, I'm also being being unkind and, think- and cruel. Now, what does that mean practically for you? If you want to discuss that, we can discuss that. What what are you supposed to do? Great question. But just I want you to understand where I'm coming from. And I think this is very important. And Ellie with your permission, I just want to say that I'm doing a special webinar exclusive on the topic of homosexuality with a few therapists and a few people who are who who are who deal have dealt with this for many many years who want to share their journeys and experiences and it's going to be on March twelfth four o'clock p m you have to register and for the information to register you can uh, you can go to the yeshiva.net, my website, and this webinar on the bottom has the information on how to register. Or you could email us info at theyeshiva.net in order to register to register to the webinar on homosexuality, March twelfth, Sunday, four o'clock p.m. Over there, it's going to be a full few, whatever time it is, designated exclusively to this with a, with people who are have been dealing with it for many many years, both from a professional perspective and. And from a personal perspective. But I really, I really thank you for what you said, and I hope you can understand my words coming from, not from a place of negativity at all. Not from yeah. a place at all. And if somebody comes to my house for Shabbos, right, every Chabad house has people who drive to the, that's what Eli is saying, right? They drive to the, to the Chabad rabbi or to the Ash rabbi or to the any rabbi on Shabbos, right? The rabbi doesn't uh, want him to drive on Shabbos. Right, but the rabbi doesn't get up and say, "Get out of my house! You're 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 a horrible person." The rabbi knows if he may have if he if he grew up like this person, he may have also been driving mm-hmm. on Shabbos, <laughs> right? It's a journey, it's a process, and we need to be able to educate each other, and and then and, and in, in and the spirit of personal responsibility, and by
1: personal responsibility, I mean as more as a community, is that when, oftentimes when someone feels so profoundly rejected, they're desperate to feel fully accepted. So they want to be accepted exactly the way exactly the way they are. So in many cases, I think members of the homosexual community are saying, you've rejected me completely, meaning they didn't feel like their behavior wasn't accepted or that, hey, it's against the Torah, but you know so are other things, and everyone is welcome here. Right. right. They, they so are So then the fight comes back they just as so strong and say, hey, but accept me fully, accept me fully, accept me fully. So exactly –
2: and that's our and, downfall. And that's what I, that's that's where I think there downfall. is
1: some truth to the the question is that the first move yeah, is on the, right. that's again the first on the community. I think the first move is on the community. The first yeah. com, for the community to be fully accepting of the of, of of individuals, whatever that struggle is, and say there is room for for everyone. And then people who are dealing with whatever it is, not wanting to keep Shabbos, or not wanting to, um, or, or not or not wanting to be with someone of the opposite gender then they won't they won't want that. They won't need that. But I think the next move is actually on the community to be more understanding and more accepting. And one of the things that I think will happen possibly from these discussions and others is the number of people who are dealing with this. And I'm not talking about the people who are, um, who've accepted that lifestyle, right? Who've, that's, that's where they are. I'm talking about the number of people who are dealing with homosexual experiences in childhood, ma- um, males and females. Or... Um, As adults or watching gay porn or any of these things, the numbers are very high. The numbers are not like, we're not talking about one or 2% of the community. And when it's understood on a larger level, just how many people actually have these experiences and have these struggles. Like, for example, we're so quick to reject the person who says proudly that they are in fact um, homosexual, but the person who pretends to be from, but is sleeping with male prostitutes He's accepted, but there are many of those. There are many of those. And I know that because I know some of them. And I I I know I, I, I know I know these experiences. So once we understand how prevalent this is, we can be more accepting of everyone who's dealing with any of this. And dealing is not the same as struggling. And just any anyone who has this and say, okay. Right, you're accepted. You're fully accepted. And some of these behaviors, of course, I mean, Judaism has a a rule book and they're, they're an ideal book. Right? These are the ideals. And to, to sway to sway from the ideals, then go to any rabbi and feel accepted. Why do you need a rabbi who's committed himself to all the ideals to say this ideal is not necessary? But the next move is on the community.
2: Right. Right. I, I want to point out one thing. You know, we mentioned a lot tonight addiction abuse, molestation, I think in most scenarios, Ellie and I use the word, he was abused. It's just very important to emphasize that we're dealing with an equal amount and maybe many more females, girls, young women who have been abused sexually, God forbid, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, physically. It's just very, very important. We use the word he maybe as a Freudian <laughs> slip because we both happen to be men for whatever reason, but I just want to just pay tribute to all the women and girls who have been dealing with this and who are heroes, heroes. You don't give up, and you're searching for healing, and, and your journey should be successful, and we're here to help in any way we yeah. can. I just want to mention that. I also want to mention about homosexuality, and that is over the years I've dealt with, I could say, hundreds of people who came to me or wrote to me and still write to me constantly. I get every week a few emails about this, usually sometimes anonymous, sometimes not anonymous. And these are people who are tormented. These are people who are tormented. And they tried everything. They tried, they tried. And, you know, people who can't get, they don't feel they can get married, or they're in a marriage and it's difficult, or anywhere in between. And it's so, so, so important. Number one, not to condemn yourself and call yourself an evil, monstrous, horrific person who God hates and you're going to burn in hell. Because I know your story. You have shared it with me. And I know that one person, not one of you, who believe you believe in Torah and you don't want to engage in this behavior. Some of you have never engaged in this behavior. And I salute you every day for that courage. And you know that you didn't choose it. You know that you didn't choose it. And I, I, just, I just want to say that it is so important in today's world where there is so many, so many modalities of self-exploration and self-discovery to be able to open <coughs> yourself up honestly to everything that is going on inside of you. What the results will be exactly sexually in terms of gender, I don't know. And I'm not a prophet. But, but I do know that such exploration of self your history, your background, your childhood, may have tremendous, tremendous consequences in the area of sexuality. I'm not now giving a black and white scientific statement about anybody or everybody, but I'm talking from a lot of personal association and experience. You may find and discover tremendous gems, but it's going to be scary. And you have to understand, we live in a climate where this is often discouraged. And that's a crime. It's a crime. And the reason it's a crime, because just like I cannot make a scientific statement one way, nobody should make a scientific statement in the opposite way. If somebody feels that they're struggling with homosexuality, they say, you know what your struggle is? That you struggle. Your struggle is that you struggle. Just accept yourself, you're normal, normal, normal human being, and you are indoctrinated by the religious, fundamentalist, Christian, or orthodox freaks. <coughs> that's dogma, too. That's indoctrination, too. That's indoctrination too. Let let us explore ourselves. And you know what? If you find out that at the end of everything you're the same homosexual, granted, you may also find out a lot of very powerful truths about yourselves on many levels. Let's be open. Let's be humble. Nobody has mastered the full secrets of sexuality. I
1: I know you uh, you have a 10 o'clock but I just had a couple of things that um none of what you're saying, as far as you know, my understanding of your opinions on this discussions we had is suggesting in any way something like reparative therapy, which some of these therapies have actually hurt people to try to knock a reparative therapy to you try to knock a uh, an attraction out of someone. You know, my my advice to myself, and I shared a little bit of my personal experience here. There's obviously more, but I'm being sensitive to some of the people in my life by not going too far and too too many details. But my advice and my experience does not compare to other people's experiences. One of the things I said to myself, I said, hey, there's so many letters that people use for their sexuality. So I said, maybe there's a letter that only includes me. I'm the only one in the population that has this letter. And I accept myself fully. Whatever this letter is, this is only me. I don't have to be in anyone else's box. Not the G, not the B, not the T, not anything else. Although there were times I thought I belonged in, uh, in different ones, possibly. I don't belong in any of them maybe I belong in my own and I first accept myself whatever I find and then I explore if we explore conditionally it's very difficult and when I say explore I never explored my sexuality I just accepted it I never I just accepted it and then right. from there wow. You know, for myself, heal everything, heal everything and see what emerges. And for many other people, heal everything and see what emerges. One other thing, because it was a gentleman who called me and he reached out to me several times. He said, I know you're doing a webinar on homosexuality and I want my voice to be heard. I want you to, I can't speak. Not in my situation. He's a, he's a Rebbe. He said, I want you to share my story. So he's, has a number of kids. He's been with other men. He's, um, He's been with other men, he struggled for a long time, gay porn and everything else. And he said pretty much every single rabbi he's spoken to, every person who went for help, did one of two things. Either they minimized it completely, come on, it's not a big deal, it's not a big deal, like this is nothing. Or they suggested in some way that if he cannot control this in any way and he chooses to go in that direction, then he's... He's not accepted at all. And he said he felt like he knows too it was just it – w- it was horrible. And he says to minimize it, it's. he said, I've been trying it for years, he said. I've been trying to minimize this for years. It's not a big deal. It's not this. It's not me. Stop. Exactly. Stop. It's the same thing. Stop. It's that yelling at something to stop. It's not going to stop. And then the suggestion that who knows – he he didn't want to and he had children. He understood it's losing his family but there was a part of him that we felt – that he felt – Like, and anyone, people have, like, a sexual desire, and if it's unmet, and it's more than sexual, oftentimes it's romantic, and it's deep, and for it to be completely unmet is very difficult, and if this person chooses to go in that direction, to say he's written off completely is very difficult, so he wanted his voice to be heard, he's a from person, he's a teacher, he's uh, doing everything he could, he said.
2: We don't have to be afraid, we don't have to write off, we don't write off, why don't we write off secular Jews today? The answer is... Why should we? Every Jew is, is is divine and holy, and every mitzvah matters, and every mitzvah counts. And you never help. And even if you actually want to, even if you feel this person is making a genuine mistake in their actual relationships, and you want to actually help them, you can't help anybody today by 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 throwing them out. They don't say, "Oh, I'm so sorry." Build a relationship. Have a have a conversation. On the contrary. Empathy is the path to all transformation. If, 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 if that's really even your objective, you want to really help the person. Right,
1: right. If you don't want to help closer, the person, then why are you talking to him?
2: And if you want to help the person... come even closer. The person, you if you really believe, you really believe that this person chose the wrong path, right? So become closer. What does every, every Kiruv rabbi, chabatshlich in the world do for the Jews not eating kosher? <laughs> I'm never talking to him again. Throw him out of the chabats. Right. You become closer right. to him. Uh, Understand them more. Show them what Kashras is, show them what Chavez is. be a living example of yeah. love. Show. And able, now this is very sensitive, this is very deep. but connection, not, no alienation. Judaism doesn't have to be afraid of these things. We need more confidence if God, if you have to protect God. From any criticism. Yeah, right. Thank you for saying this.
1: The truth lie. doesn't need our defense. The truth doesn't need our defense. You know what I mean. <laughs>
2: <laughs> if, if Torah is real, if God knew what He was talking about, if He built, if He built this universe, if He knew about sex, He created sex, and He knew what He's talking about. Have confidence. You can listen to questions. You can even be challenged. You don't have to be apologetic. Truth is truth. Is truth. And I have seen many, many people, and again, this is not a scientific statement, I've seen many people who have followed this advice and have explored their deepest, deepest self. And they have seen tremendous, tremendous developments and evolutions in their sexual consciousness. Am I saying, am I suggesting reparative therapy? No. Am I suggesting there can be a person who will, completely liberate himself from any homosexual tendency? No, and I don't think that's even necessary.
0: Many of us <laughs> right, are married exactly. and we
2: don't liberate ourselves from sexual yeah. feelings about other women right. and we're very happily married. We're very happily married. So there's people, they may struggle with something still, but they could be very happily married. It's so important though not to not to, you know, we dig in our our, our heels and our claws into certain positions which are often very political and very, very black and white and, and very judgmental. And we all lose from it. We all lose from it. I never heard anybody, I never heard any scientist or politician suggest that if somebody was raped for 10 years by his father or brother or uncle or babysitter or teacher or counselor, he should give up on the ability of having a healthy marriage. Nobody does that even though we know that his marriage is going to be destroyed, but we say there's help, there's healing. Try, try this, try this, try this, try this, try this, even though we know how disastrous it is. So for somebody who believes in Torah, and believes that a homosexual relationship is forbidden, but you're struggling with it, and for you it is a struggle, suddenly here there's nothing to do whatsoever, nothing, neuroplasticity, out the window. Expansive consciousness out the window. Exploring trauma out the window. That doesn't sound scientific to me, my dear friends. If somebody's really content, okay, it's a whole other discussion. Yep. Yeah, I think everyone has the right the
1: the right to choose to heal how they want to heal and to choose to live the lifestyle that they want to
2: live. And this is some of what I alluded to in last week's conversation. And to and to and to know yeah. and to know that there are options. And to know that there are options. There's people maybe that will are very vindictive and they, they alienate you, but there's people who are not vindictive. And I, I I am connected to many people in this community, the LGBT community, who do feel it's a struggle for them. And I need to respect them too. For me to say, it's not a struggle. You guys are brainwashed. You guys are brainwashed. Who made marriage? Somebody, marrying a woman? Marry a man. You know, I could say... It's not respecting them. So you say, oh, the only reason they say this is because the religious people brainwash them. Don't be so dogmatic. Maybe some people are homosexually they have tendencies, and they really don't want it. Don't impose your view on somebody else. It's also not fair. It's also not fair. Respect the fact that they do feel it's a struggle. Respect it. Right? Maybe for you it's not. And respect the fact that they do want to explore things about themselves. You know, it's like the dogma works on both sides. And let's respect the fact that some people do feel it's a struggle. I get hundreds of letters, and they're actually very open people. But there's something inside of them that says, you know what, I want to build a family. I don't know how, can you help me, Rabbi Why?" And for me just to sell them, get over it, get over it. Just marry a man, I feel, I feel that's so disrespectful. Even without the Torah, it's disrespectful. Certainly from the position I come from, believing that, that the Torah is true. So there is a lot, a lot to explore here. And there are people who can be helpful. Not dogmatic people, and not people who think you could scream, stop, and, and you'll become heterosexual in a day. And, and we're happy to continue this conversation. I said we're having a special webinar, uh, March 12th, uh, 4 o'clock p.m., you could uh, email us at info at the to register about this topic of homosexuality. Ellie, are you going to continue taking should questions? I? Okay, let I me see if I can take questions and we'll go from here. Okay. I think you I'll should continue. continue for another 20 minutes. I, 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 I have to apologize because I have to run. All <laughs> <laughs> good. Two know hours We're going to be two, on for three hours together. It. But <laughs> you're right, I'm sorry. Uh, time flies when you're with people you love. Ellie's a very good conversationalist. so uh, No, it's, there's a lot uh, to talk about. They're trying to... The truth is, a very close person to me, a very close person to me called me after the last webinar and said, very good, but you hogged the mic, and Ellie also <laughs> doesn't hate the mic. Yeah, it's, so... It's <laughs> I told that to Ellie. so I he said, "Guilty, guilty, guilty as, as uh, <laughs> accused."
1: I soaked myself. I didn't but, say. Uh, we, whatever it is. But uh, listen, it's here. If people are watching. They're watching. Yeah, it. But people he, we're not I forcing said anyone. We for decided to me. To,
2: uh, to listen to this. That's we're not for, we're not forcing anybody. And uh, the only ones who are forced <laughs> to be here is you and Taylor and Taylor and Reb Shmuel on my side. But uh, but thank you very much. Ellie's going to continue with the questions. Two we're weeks Thursday night. Two weeks in one so day. Right,
1: March 16th, 8 p.m. March 16th, 8 p.m. Psychedelics. Yeah, Psychedelics. I think we discussed homosexuality, we'll discuss, right? but, uh, you know, if we want to go more, if there's more, you know, if, if there are questions that come in, we'll, we'll address it. There's obviously experiences, and I don't say, like, mine is limited, right, the, the number of people I've spoken okay. to, but I think we have to invite this conversation a little bit more
2: so that more voices are heard. Mine is also limited. There's so many people, and everyone has a different story and journey. But I I do have to say that I've dealt with hundreds and hundreds of people and I've heard many stories, very personal stories, and special people, by the way, I want you to know. These are some of our greatest souls, okay? It's a a well-kept secret. These are some of our greatest souls. Their sensitivities, their kindness, and their spirituality is sometimes unparalleled. I'm not making a scientific connection here. I'm just telling you from the experience of hundreds of people, something special about these neshamas, we lose by not having a relationship with them. And I'm talking about females 100%. and males struggling 100%. with this. Males and And not females. struggling
1: with it. And not struggling with it. Okay. And not struggling with it. <laughs> and not struggling.
2: <laughs> no, it You're is. Keeping me on my toes. It is. It's the That's nash. A You're keeping me on my toes. Us. Thank you. Thank you, thank yep. you. I, I understand. I understand. Sending my love and blessings to thank everybody, you, you. and I'll see you later. Thank you for. Uh, yeah, we'll go for another. We'll go ship, for another yeah? fifteen to twenty minutes. You'll we'll be a some single questions. pilot. for the For the twenty minutes of landing, we you'll got be it. a single
1: pilot. <laughs> thank you, thank you, I, I, I. thank you so much. Bye bye. So, a question over here: I'm bipolar, and my girlfriend is a victim of sexual abuse and has an eating disorder. In the firm world, they say this marriage would never be able to last. I'm confused if it's true or not. Okay, actually, I'll leave this question for why, why, because it's actually addressed him. Why, why, what's your take on this? Should we stay together or not? Someone asked over here, if someone at a later stage of life can find out that his father raped him, doesn't that put psychedelics in a really scary scary category? So I, I think this question is asking, can psychedelics bring up, um, terrifying memories? And the answer is yes, it could. But it's not going to create anything that's not there. So if someone was raped as a child, they're dealing with that every single day. The opportunity of psychedelics is to deal with something head on. Because when we're forced to deal with something indirectly, it's often um, much more painful, and its tentacles are much more far reaching. It reaches. So if someone was raped, like in this case, by their father, it's affecting most likely every area of their life. So for the opportunity to enter a a psychedelic space um, with the help of an experienced facilitator and it may take more than one and to face that head on and heal them while it is scary it also has the potential to be um, truly healing someone asked does it mean if I'm addicted to sex and porn I suffered from trauma that I don't know about so my understanding of this is that uh, previously this was understood to be the case that if someone was um, addicted to anything, that they suffered pretty severe trauma. I think in today's day and age, especially as it relates to porn, we're dealing with a different category of um, addict, and that's someone who was introduced to pornography at a very young age. Someone perhaps could say this is a trauma, but if someone at 12 or 13 or 14 years old was using pornography on a regular basis, then they may be addicted to pornography as they get older, even though there's no obvious other trauma, physical abuse trauma or things like that. Maybe a good example for for this would be things like video games. Someone who had a decent life, but the only thing we did is introduce them to video games at a very young age, could come into adulthood with a very severe video game addiction. That's not based on any sort of trauma. But typically, when we think about drug abuse, when we think about, um, alcoholism, when we think about severe sex addiction, we're talking about someone who's traumatized. Gabor Mate, in his book, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, says that at least amongst the hardcore addicts that he worked with, right, and he was, he had a clinic in Vancouver who dealt with, um, the most severe drug addicts in the population, people who often had little chance at, um, at getting sober. Gabor, said that very often the only thing to do with these patients was give them clean needles or take them from heroin and put them on methadone. But these these people's lives were ruined in many ways by uh, their drug addiction. And he said 100% of the female uh, drug addicts, this level of drug drug addict that he met, was sexually abused. And every one but one male had a memory of being sexually abused. So I, I think that does say something about the link between Um, abuse and addiction. That being said, because of the proliferation of smartphones and the internet, I think there's a new category of addict, which is someone that's just growing up into addiction. Another question here about addiction. How can we make people aware that they're actually having an addiction and shouldn't just blame others but go for help? I think we can start by not blaming them. I mean, the question is filled with a, a fair amount of blame, right? How can we make people aware that they actually have an addiction and sure. shouldn't just blame others, but go for help? Um, in my experience, if we notice that someone is an addict, not my experience, in the big book of AA, which is the, um, the Bible, so to speak, of the 12 step programs, all of them really, but specifically Alcoholics Anonymous, it, has a chapter on there of what to do with someone who's an addict. And really the only thing we're trying to do is let them know that there's an address for help because a person is not going to call a moment before they're ready. So to sit there and put it in their face and say, go heal, go heal, go heal, what does it mean go heal? It means that they have to go deep into their inner recesses of their soul in order to heal what's there. So you want them to do it on your timetable? No, they're going to do it when they have the willingness to do it. So what do we want? When they're in that state of willingness, they have an address to go to for help. So I recall speaking to someone who I understood was dealing with a very severe sex addiction. And when I brought it up with him, I noticed a lot of resistance. And this is normal because a um, an addiction needs denial in order to survive. Part and parcel of the addiction is the denial. Meaning the same way there's a drive to have the drug, there is a drive to deny the fact that there's a problem with the drug. It's part and parcel of it, this denial. And what I said to him was, listen, I said, it is my, from my experience, I believe that a recovery program could help you. You're obviously not ready, and I'm not going to impose anything on you. The only thing I want you to know is that you can call my phone at any point in time. Um, and I will never say I told you so. There's none of that if you ever need help related to this. And he felt that for me and it was sincere. And I told him that me, myself, I knew I had an addiction and I wasn't ready to work on it until I was ready to work on it. So there's absolutely no judgment. If it turns out to be the case that I am right, I will never say I told you so. Three or four months later, this gentleman called me up. He was near suicidal from his addiction. So I think that is the offer that we have to, to, to put to people is just let them know the address that there is. So one of the recommendations um, in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, is actually leave the book around. At this point in time, I think most people know a 12-step program exists. But then it was saying just leave the book around. In other words, give someone an address to go to so in that moment that they have that willingness that often comes from desperation, they're not desperate without a solution. And we just want to meet someone and be available to them there. And too much judgment and too much harshness will make someone less likely to come forward to you, to whoever the person is that puts that blame on them because they don't no one wants to hear. I told you so. It says, what what direction can we give children in addressing pornography and masturbation during their teenage years when there's a natural desire for sexual exploration, but halacha clearly has issues with such sexual exploration until marriage? You know, as someone who was in this position not so long ago, I was going through yeshiva system 20 years ago, um, I wish there was someone who I can speak to comfortably about this. Realistically speaking, can a teenager who's going through that level of, um you know, the, the stage of puberty and the intense sexual desire that that often comes with, the intense sexual obsession sometimes that that comes with, can they abstain from porn and masturbation completely? Maybe not for many of us. Maybe not. It certainly wasn't the case for me. But having an... So, first of all, maybe we have to relax the perfectionism standards. right? just say halakha. Halakha is a... Is, is often ideal. It's not always, you know, I'm not a rabbi. I'm not coming from that place. But we don't have to pull back the ideal just to be accepting of someone. We can still, okay, define the ideal. This is the ideal. The ideal is not to use any porn or masturbation. When someone get, goes there, especially in today's day and age where these images are are so out there between film and social media and pornography, like it's all out there. People are being stimulated sexually as well. It's going to be difficult to abstain for many of us, and there should be an avenue to speak to. So I think the best thing we can do for educators or for parents is to give an avenue for people who um are struggling to talk to about it. I think one of the fears and one of the reasons we don't is because we don't want to introduce anyone to the concept. First of all, the body is introducing the person to the concept. It's there. Number one, but even if there was a time and place in society where it made sense to not have these conversations, let's say until marriage, in today's day and age, it's not. I mean, it's simply, if, if, if you're watching this, that means you're on the internet in some fashion. Most likely your kids are on the internet in some fashion. And if that's the case, then they have access to all of these things as well. And there needs to be the avenue for, um, for discussion. A, a sex education is happening. So, in the if there was a time and place where no sex education was happening, and you could say, "Okay we're going to wait till marriage to get that sex edu- education i can't say whether I agree or disagree with it, but it's it, it's all a hypothetical because it doesn't exist today. However, in today's day and age where someone is getting a sex education, and the amount of teenagers, and this is not a Jewish problem, this is not a religious problem, this is across the board, the amount of teenagers who get their education primarily from pornography is an issue. So we have to step out of that. And that's part of the reason that I think we offer some of these conversations in a public format is because there's so much else in a public format. So what are we going to do? Keep these things in secret amongst three people and have conversations when pornography is the is the number one most searched uh Content on the internet doesn't make any sense. It says, what do what I think the first step is towards fixing porn addiction? The first step is admitting we have a problem, number one. But even before the first step, admitting we have a problem, is also the willingness to stop it. And I don't know what to do for willingness. I think willingness is a God-given gift. And uh, if someone doesn't have that willingness to stop, and hopefully they have the willingness for the willingness or something there, uh, there were periods of time where I lost my willingness. I was working on it and I slipped and I slipped enough times back into pornography and I lost my willingness. And the only thing I did was I would pray for the willingness to come back. Like, please give me the willingness to, uh, to, to fight for this. And then after those things are done, ask for help. You know, I mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, um, my own email address that someone can reach out to Instagram, message me. I can do my best. I have on my podcast in search of more. I have conversations uh, the first podcast i put out there was called escaping porn addiction i go into much more detail on those subjects i also reference guard your eyes which is a resource people can go to and then uh, the the other resource okclarity.com where people can meet um, therapists or a specific person who can help them in their location who has a sensitivity to the Jewish community who can help them um, with these issues but it's those three things the willingness the honesty and the courage to ask for help. Over here, so many suicides go misreported. Families do their utmost to explain it away. The other kids Shaduchim, it prevents closure. It's untrue and selfish. It's 2023. While contagion is a thing, suicide is not catchy. This goes for all matters. We can still have measured, responsible, and frank discussions while still protecting the vulnerable. What steps need to be taken so that mental disease is treated like any other? So for this you know, there are different questions here and specific to suicide. It's certainly something that's frustrated me in the past that someone who's died from a suicide or an overdose and the family has chosen to keep it quiet. I don't blame the family because we created an environment where it's difficult for the family to do so. Um, Avrami Garari, who's a uh, a close friend of mine who lost his daughter Yocheved to suicide, um, has been public about it. And I think it took a tremendous amount of courage for him and his family to do that. Him and his wife, Dini, and the children to be open and honest about what happened to their daughter, and I think more people doing the same and sharing that, hey, this is actually what happened, whether it was an overdose or a suicide or something of this of this nature. I don't think uh the data shows that it shows contagion. in fact, what I've heard I've heard from um Lee Yaffe, who runs a long short road, an organization that's um dedicated to training and awareness around suicide prevention. What I've heard from her as an expert on the subject is that um, speaking about it in mature ways is most likely to make people who are struggling with suicidal ideation more comfortable to ask for help. So the best thing we can do for prevention is actually to speak about it in mature and responsible ways and let those who are struggling with the thoughts, because no one wants to struggle with those thoughts, those who are struggling with those thoughts to have a destination they can go to for help and know that that person is going to receive them. Sometimes it's not because of judgment, but because it's because of overwhelm. Some of us get overwhelmed by these subjects. So I think that knowing that the person they're asking for help won't get overwhelmed is, um, is important. But, you know, for myself, I didn't wait for the leaders in the community. I didn't ask the rabbis to do anything. Rabbi Jacobson joined me on this and I'm grateful um that he did. But I didn't wait for a rabbi to say something before I started speaking. I started sharing my own personal story. And obviously that came after some healing and there's timing for everything and there's a way we do everything. But I think that those who have these questions can are obviously seeing a problem. And instead of pointing the finger towards someone else to solve it, maybe look if they have the um resources, both internal and external, to be able to do something about the problem. You know? In the place where there is no man, um, be the man. And I don't mean that necessarily as a man. Many women are doing this work as well. People need to stand up where they see a problem and not wait for these supposed leaders of the community to to do it. The leaders are the people who stand up and and say so. Everyone can can take that upon themselves and make this world a, a better place. And I hope that um, many listen. I hope that many who are listening tonight who have the resources. Internal resources, external resources, to be able to do something about that. That they that they do. Tyler, do you want to um, bring up a few questions? The ones that uh, came in this evening, and ones that are related to addiction or things that I can handle myself, and not necessarily to religion or halacha or rabbis.
0: Yeah, we we got a few. Um, I'm going to pair two and one because they're similar. Uh, <clears throat> so happy to hear you talk about plant medicine. Our community needs and is ready for true healing. Where do you see opportunities to be women for ambassadors for healing in the community? And how can I find a reliable shaman in order to heal through plant medicine?
1: Okay. So two different questions. One was about um, women and healing. I think there are ones who are, um, who are doing things. I mean, a lot of the people who publicized um, this event um, are women who are, uh, who are in this. Mimi uh, Hert publicized it. She has a, a, um, uh, an Instagram account where she talks about some of these things, her own plant medicine experiences and otherwise. Elia Herzl, she publicized it. She speaks about it. Okay. Clarity, who I mentioned. Sterna Suisa. I mean, there are many women in the community, not necessarily related to plant medicine or not, but who are talking about, um, talking about healing. I would say that there's probably more women than men. In the um, in the conversation, in terms of finding a reliable um, shaman, so it, the the situation is important. It's like asking, where do I find a good therapist for who, in what situation, in what context, what sort of medicine? I I would reach out to an individual who you know who's experienced this, and obviously we have to be sensitive to the laws are changing in many places, but they aren't fully there. And even in many places where it's decriminalized, it's still not um licensed in a way that there are therapists and a licensing board for these things. so the best thing to do is to do a little research and to to speak to people who have these experiences and see if your needs are similar to them and to um, and and to see if the people who help them are people who can help you and if not keep asking and keep searching but It will be found. And I think pay attention in the sense that more and more people are talking about this. It's becoming more and more common. But I, but I I do want to add that it's not, it's not inconsequential who the facilitator is on a plant medicine journey. There are, there are many things that they do both in preparing a person for the experience and during the experience itself and after the experience in order to help, um, you know, reap the 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 fruits of the, of the experience. That it's not an inconsequential decision who one uh, who one works with. So do your research, and I trust that you'll find the uh, the right person. And like I said, there are a number of people speaking publicly about it. So reach out to them, and if their situation seems similar to you, reach out to them and see if they're willing to uh,
0: guide you in a specific direction. Is it is porn bad for women to watch as well? I keep going back to it, but I don't know why. So ashamed to bring it up in therapy. Sexually abused as a preteen till my mid-teenage years.
1: So the first que- the first part of that question, whether or not porn is bad. This is not a question for um, bad for women. It's not a question for me to answer. Maybe Rabbi Jacobson will obviously have have his opinions. That's not the relevant part of the conversation of the of the question for me. The relevant part of the question for me is more about the shame, and that someone is afraid to bring it up in therapy. So I want to say to this person that there are many women who watch porn, and there are many women who are addicted to porn. If there were only women in the population, then and there was a porn, there was the same exact porn problem. We would say that women have a porn problem. The only reason that it's not addressed is because it's less than men. It's much less than men. But it's not. You're not talking about one or two percent of women who are watching porn or addicted to porn. It is common, as, as as things are common. This is one of those that are common. So there's no shame in uh, um, in bringing it up either in therapy or or with another uh, or with another person. And that's where the conversation starts. And once we're able to relax the shame around it, then we can see how, detrim- how detrimental it is, how damaging it is, and things like that. Obviously, Robert Jacobson would talk about it from a halachic perspective, the, the damaging nature of it. Uh, for me, I'm looking at it more through the lens of addiction. And while there's shame there, that needs to be rooted out. And just, uh, I guess, another comment on people who are in therapy, the, the job of the therapist is to create an environment where someone feels safe to speak. And doesn't mean the therapist isn't doing that test the therapist, bring it up. Meaning the therapist, if they're somewhat competent, understands the need to be receptive of someone who brings up an issue. So if if you're happy with the therapist otherwise, then I imagine they'll be very um, understanding when you bring up this issue. But if there's a, a reason I talk more than any, any other, it's to relax shame around topics. And as any shame that there is around women who watch pornography, there's only so much I can do to relax that shame. But I can tell you as someone who's spoken a lot about pornography that many women have reached out to me and it is a topic of
0: conversation for many women. How can I as a child of a recovering sex, drug and alcohol addict not take on all the skewed beliefs that my parents have passed on to me?
1: I don't think that question is um, limited to someone who's has a sex drug and alcohol and an alcoholic parent. I think that everyone has to ask themselves those questions. How do I not take the, the um, negative parts of my parents, the negative parts of my upbringing and carry it into adulthood, right? How do we, and generational trauma, how do we not pass the worst of ourselves to our children is the question. And I think that once we become adults, then we're the parent in the room. So we're not looking to our parents anymore. We're looking to ourselves to create the environment that we need in order to give a better world for our children. Because if we're going to excuse that, that we don't have the responsibility to deal with it because our parents imposed it on us, then who says our parents have that respons- had that responsibility at any point? Because it's very likely their parents imposed it on them in some way. I I doubt someone who became a sex addict, a drug addict, and an alcoholic had a perfect childhood and perfect parents. So we don't absolve any adult of the responsibility. But now that we're the adult, we're we're not either absolved of the responsibility. And it's us who have to become the parents to ourselves and to create the environment within our own world that we want to pass
0: on to our children and want to give to ourselves. I grew up with no religion at all. I'm trying to join Chabad, but I don't really know how to. So I just read and try my best. Help. <laughs> okay. I'm not sure
1: why this uh, question, this webinar, but if someone's asking about Chabad, go to Chabad.org, put in your zip code. I'm sure you'll find the Chabad house pretty close to you. Reach out to the local rabbi, local Chabad rabbi. And uh, I hope you meet someone who's amazing, how many Chabad rabbis are. All right. On that note, thank you all um, for attending, for joining, and for this opportunity uh, in the last 25 minutes or so to um, land the plane, as Raya Jacobson mentioned. Uh, for those interested in um, more of my own work, I have a podcast called The In Search of More by all means. You can check it out. We release episodes weekly, both interviews, both some of my own thoughts. Uh, we talk mostly about mental health, healing, spirituality, etc.